Hello and welcome to A Tippling Philosopher with myself, Jonathan M.S. Pierce, and my esteemed guest, Emerson Green. We were we cut it a bit a bit closer, a bit of a close shave, unlike <laughs> my face. Uh, um, so uh, anyway, uh, this is basically padding whilst the adverts play out, and no one can actually hear this anyway live. But oh, really? uh, probably that's why people have thirty second countdowns. But anyway, Emerson, thank you so much for for uh, turning up and joining in the, the ensuing fun. How are you? I'm great. Uh, thank you for having me. Um, I'm excited to um, talk about quote unquote the dumbest thing that some people have ever read. <laughs> <laughs> Which this is how is some the... people characterize the uh, argument that we made <laughs> the other day. Yeah, yeah I, well, I'll come to that in a second because uh, I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll come to that in a second. Um, I, just for the people on the live chat, uh, thank you for, for turning up. Uh, Mitch Mazzaroli, and I do apologize if I butchered your name, um, gets a virtual clap on the back. So thank you. Uh, for being the first to the live chat and i said i'll give you something and and that was that was it so i hope you're happy um brilliant so emerson has been on this uh on on my channel before and we had a really great talk about atheism general arguments we talked about um abduction as a form of of logical as an an approach to to making arguments um uh specifically concerning um atheism and 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 the rationale that it's more probable that god doesn't exist so we, we will start our chat off with that today but but before we get there um uh emerson thank you again i'm going to thank you for coming on again and i'm going to just uh talk about you um uh we, I, we, you did the whole introduction we talked about you and your life before um I'm going to just share, hopefully, uh, the screen to show where people can find you. Talk us through what you do and, uh, you know, what you spend probably far too much of your life um, banging on about. Oh, yeah, definitely too much time. Um, but you can find me at uh, Walden Pod on Twitter, and um, I've got a link tree there, and um, I've got a link tree on YouTube as well, just Emerson Green on YouTube. And, um, yeah, you can find uh, you can find everything everything there but i've got uh the emerson green youtube channel um where i post my podcasts so i started counter apologetics a few years ago um and uh, a little while later i started walden pod so the first one is just about you know philosophy of religion the other one is about most of my other interests usually you know the metaphysics of consciousness sometimes other stuff um but yeah it's most of it ends up on the youtube channel it's kind of decentralized, but that's the uh, the way I like it. But yeah, I talk about religion and consciousness and, and sometimes some other stuff. What I really love about your content is that you basically put a transcript of your uh, of, of your podcasts as blog pieces, and that's really phenomenally useful for me when I'm writing pieces uh, because we have such a uh, a crossover in, of interests that that I find that recently I've been <laughs> I've been like I used your um, uh, the, what we'll be talking about today mega moral fruits um, piece which is a transcript of your video to help just uh, construct my own piece on on the subject because it's something that I find really interesting especially having just read Phil Zuckerman who's a sociologist of religion and interviewed him him but, and we'll talk about this later because he you can bring into 
into bear a lot of these sort of um, empirical evidences to support the the what is a, an abductive argument, um, the mega moral yeah, and, fruits. And that's why I'm so inarticulate in these sorts of things because I, I script out everything that I that I say in those podcasts. Like I, I write it out pretty carefully, and um, and then I try to make it sound like I'm just having a conversation with you. But then when I actually get in something like this, then um, people uh, <laughs> comment on the difference. Sometimes the f- I got a really funny message a couple months ago that was like, Emerson, I, I love your podcast, but when you say like, and um, it's like nails on a chalkboard to me. <laughs> I guess I, I do. I do have all these vocal ticks that I, I don't really pick up on until I'm doing this. And then I'm like, uh, like, um, whatever, every five <laughs> seconds. And it, it's, it's really unfortunate. Well, you know, deal with it basically viewer deal with it jog on or enjoy um uh, those are the only two options basically um so we i wrote a, a piece on the uh, meager moral fruits argument and bear in mind we haven't explained what that is yet uh and i, I produced a, an article on only sky and then you because i i reference your your transcript your article your pod you then shared that on Twitter, and then uh, someone on Twitter was like, "This is the dumbest argument." I've, I mean, I forget exactly what they said. It's someone who um, who I've encountered many times, and who kind of me and my little friend group have just so many running jokes about because there are a handful of um, just these psycho Catholic traditionalists on Twitter. Um, you know, like I have Catholic friends and. And they're normal, <laughs> but then there are these people where they make Mel Gibson look moderate or something. But there's one of these people, uh, yeah, like quote tweeted and said, like, you know, this is a terrible argument. And then the thing that he was mainly upset about was that you referenced uh, racism, used racism as an example for things, and I used LGBT stuff as an example for things. And that's mainly what he seemed upset about. Um, didn't really interact with the substance of the argument too much, but. You know, in all of his replies, like the the replies from his fans and followers were really interesting to me. Like they were throwing around the word sodomite, which is not something I realized people were doing in this century. But yeah, they were just like, you know, it was an interesting it was an interesting response because, you know, I have to admit, I used that LGBT example over and over again for a couple reasons. You know, one of them is just that it's a really solid empirical claim to say that Christianity has been an obstacle to LGBT equality. It's pretty easy to substantiate that. Whereas some meager moral fruits arguments make empirical claims that are hard to substantiate. Um, but also I, like I said, I have to admit something, which is that it, it was kind of bait, you know, like I was kind of baiting Christians into what I thought they would do, which was something like, you know, oh, it's complicated, you know, we need to love our gay brothers and sisters, but, you know, sometimes we have to lean on the church's teachings instead of our own understanding. Like, I was so I was we, thinking... We don't, we don't hate the sinner, we hate the sin. Yeah, I, I, was think, I was thinking that they would cut, they would have to reaffirm their kind of anti-gay positions. I did not expect um, the response that it got among some, in some quarters, which was, Christians are better because we oppose the sodomites, which is like, you know, verbatim. I'm, I'm not strawmanning there. Like, yeah. uh, so it was more than I expected. So that when I wrote my article on the Mega Moral Fruits um, argument, I, I actually didn't go down the LGBT route that you did. And I chose racism and then talked about other more generic uh, pro-social 
um, behaviors such as you know kindness and so on and so forth uh, but I chose racism because I thought that is actually less controversial that, that you know I think most humans although although they may actually be racist they don't openly claim to be racist right and so therefore they say racism is bad i mean most people appear to agree that racism is bad and then i i produced the the empirical evidence that that suggests that that you know it within america the more christian you are the more likely you are to be racist and therefore uh, you know and that seemed to be a pretty decent empirical evidence and b everyone would agree that that racism is bad and so therefore i didn't want to do that as baity as as you did but it's still fairly evocative and emotive. Yeah, but, I, I mean, for for my thing, I, I was just thinking that, um, you know, most of the audience, I think, especially as time goes on, including Christian audiences, like, this is increasingly common ground, you know, because, like, ideally, the argument will appeal to morals that are, like, shared ground between Christians and non-Christians. That would make the argument work best if you just appeal to things that they don't even think are moral or if they appeal to things that we don't think are moral, like tithing or something, or uh, worshiping God, then it doesn't really, you know, progress anything, because in order to have a dialogue, you do need some common ground. So, the thing is, the LGBT stuff is increasingly common ground with young Christians. It's actually pretty uh, pretty surprising. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, well, okay, absolutely. And uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about all the different sort of, not iterations, but all the different ways of measuring, I suppose, morality in a second. But before we do that, let's lay the groundwork by talking a little bit about logic and about what is induction. And I know we did this last time, but just for the audience again, what is uh, deduction, induction and abduction? Thank you very much, Ricky Johnson. Uh, my channel has become one of my favourites. Fascinating discussions. That, that's awesome thank you ricky really really generous of you to say so please check out emerson's if you haven't already his is a a a superb channel so let's talk about what is deduction what is induction and what is abduction and why is this argument that we're going to talk about abductive or at least you know what do abductive arguments what's the benefit of abductive arguments so a deductive argument is one where the conclusion follows inescapably from the premises um, so, you know, if you see like a syllogism, it's, it's usually deductive, like when people give examples. So, um, yeah, I mean, you know, standard deductive argument, you know, if P then Q P therefore Q, um, and then the conclusion just follows inescapably from <clears throat> the premises. Induction is, um, you know, more probabilistic. It's not like, so let's just give an example, sorry, of deduction. So yeah. the famous example, it can go either way this, but all men are mortals. Um, Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal. Or, yeah. That's the kind of thing that you'll see. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah so. Um, and, uh, induction is, uh, more probabilistic, you know, like, um, it just kind of raises the probability or makes something more likely than not. So Richard Swinburne, in his organization, he'll have C inductive arguments, which sort of raise the probability of a conclusion. And he has P inductive arguments, which make the conclusion more likely than not. Um, a while ago, I read a paper by Timothy Perrin and Stephen J. Weikstra that had the term abductive atheology in the title. I can't remember the whole title, but um, they talk about uh this sort of abductive approach in abduction, as I understand it is like a subspecies of induction. Yeah. So the way that they spelled it out in that paper, like, Hey, this is what Paul Draper is doing. Um, 
you know, this is kind of the approach that's emerged. So ever since then, I've sort of, you know, adopted that label for myself where it's like, yeah, abductive atheology, that's what I'm doing. So, so this is to say that we're dealing more with probability rather than, as you say, inescapably um, leading to a conclusion. And <clears throat> an inductive argument might be something like all swans I've ever seen have been white. Therefore, the next one I see will be white or something like we'll that. Will probably you know, be white. Will we'll probably be white. Uh, and, and that's inductive, but it, but, you know, it's, it's, it, it's not a surefire conclusion. So, it, you know, in, in days gone past, it would have been all swans are white, therefore the next one I will see will be white. But then we found black swans in Australia, and it's like, you know, Hume, this is a problem of induction, so on and so forth. It's like, okay. So, but this is this is a probabilistic argument. Abduction yeah. is, is as you say, connected to that because it is, it is talking about probability. So, in, mm-hmm. and it's often defined as the inference to the best explanation. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's the, uh, that's what you'll find in that, paper as i as i recall it so it's like again the the some of the like more nerdy philosophical stuff for people who might not be interested in that the the bottom line is that the conclusion is that god probably doesn't exist if you're taking this kind of approach um but uh yeah abduction the way that they describe it in that paper they use the terms explanatory and contrastive so it's explanatory in the sense that we're talking about an inference to the best explanation you know like explanatory fit what is the um, best explanation we have of the data that we see, because many explanations are logically consistent with um, the, with our observations. But you know, we want um, the explanation that sort of best predicts the world as we know it. Um, it's also contrastive in that we're comparing two different theories. So um, that kind of uh, anticipates some objections that people have to this approach. But basically, we're like comparing theism and naturalism and asking which is a better explanation. Um, you know, a better explanation in the sense that uh, the observations that we're seeing are more likely to be found in a naturalistic world than in a theistic world. So, I mean, oh, hang and on, look, looking well, at this question it, now. Well, yeah, so Mitch, because we're geeky types and philosophers, we, we, we're, this is all preamble. So we haven't even we haven't even um, uh, described the argument yet, but uh, but hang on a second. So so abductive arguments a- end up being cumulative often by adding them together and say, well, look, if 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 given this piece of data, say evolution, right, the abductive argument would be that w- what is what is more likely given evolution. So is theism more likely or is atheism atheism more likely? And then you say, well, given this atheism is more likely right given like the nature of of evolution um it's not impossible under theism but it's more likely okay so then you say then you look at something else and say what's more likely given this and what's more likely given this and when you start putting all these things together so um paul draper as you mentioned before talked about having a um a jar with different different like colored pills in so you've got red or jelly beans you've got mm-hmm. red jelly beans and blue jelly beans let's say that um blue jelly beans are arguments that support atheism or lines of evidence that or li- would support lines of evidence that would support atheism and red jelly beans are lines of evidence that support theism right and say you have like in one jar you've got overwhelming amounts of red beans and a few blue beans and another jar you've got overwhelming numbers of blue beans and a few red beans and some yellow ones which are neutral right so the idea is that when you keep picking out these arguments when you keep coming across data that that better supports atheism 
then what jar is more likely to be a ref- better ref- reflection of reality? Or, or what jar is more likely to be reality? Yeah, so which, you, which jar are we most likely pulling from? You know, if we yeah. keep pulling, like, one colored bean over, like, we keep pulling jelly beans from a jar, we don't know which one we're pulling from. But then when we look at it, we've got way more red beans, just a handful of blue beans and a handful of yellow beans, or a lot of yellow beans. Those are neutral again. Um, then it's just you know, we can just kind of infer that we've been pulling from the one that has more red beans as opposed to the one which, has, you know, because both of these jars have red beans, blue beans, and yellow beans. So, you know, again, it doesn't conclusively prove we've been pulling from the one jar. It's just more likely that we're pulling from the jar with more red beans. So the idea, so what will be presented today is that this is another argument out of many that suggests that we are pulling from the jar of atheism as opposed to theism. Yeah. So uh, and so thank you very much to Mitch. T- uh, Ten Canadian dollars is very, very generous. Really, really appreciate F- FYI, the E following the LL is silent. So uh, is it mozzarella? See, but or is it mozzarella? Uh, OK, but I, I won't pronounce the E uh, next time. I do apologize. We'll get there by like the next sixth the sixth next video um yeah. and i just want to just want to plant a flag for the nerds out there who who i don't want to get too hung up on this classificatory stuff about like induction and abduction but um if my understanding is imperfect then please correct me you know like this is just stuff i've picked up from it's not like a this is just stuff i've picked up from from reading um philosophy of religion papers and that sort of thing so as far as i understand it abduction is a type of induction. You know, when Paul Draper is making his case, I think he refers to it as inductive. Swinburne refers to his case as abductive, uh, or inductive, rather. Um, And, uh, yeah, you can frame these things different ways. You know, you can take the same argument and kind of express it in a different logical form. Um, But, yeah, I would just recommend that paper by Perrin and Weikstra to get a good explanation of abductive atheology. And I I think, and those two are are, uh, Christians, as well so uh, i mean yeah. like there's yeah. a lot of um you know friendly debate and kind of explaining each other's views in a way that you know i i'm so happy with that i like reference the paper i'm like hey look at these christians explain what i'm doing <laughs> yeah absolutely uh thank you very much canadian catholic uh for joining in the fun i am morphing into sherlock Holmes <laughs> villain i'd like to say actually sherlock Holmes. Uh, but, you know, take your pick. Um, depends where you think I sit on the moral spectrum, I suppose. I think I sit on the nice side, but, you know, I could be wrong. Um, what is the meagre moral fruits argument now right. that we're 18 minutes in? Right. <laughs> okay, so, yeah, I mean, that wasn't all pointless preamble because the no. meagre moral fruits argument does fit into this uh, scheme that we've been talking about, about looking at the world and saying, you know, what should we expect the world to look like um, if Christianity were true? And what would we expect the world to look like if naturalism were true? Um, so this is one of those, uh, you know, red beans like that we drew from the jar. That's like more consistent with um, the naturalistic jar than the Christian jar. So, you know, many who have left the Christian faith have done so because Christianity was not enabling them to pursue the good for themselves and for others. Um, there's actually, you know, a good amount of data backing that up. Um, and this is kind of surprising on Christianity. Um, the way that Paul Draper formul- formulates this argument, he he's the one who sort of named the meager moral fruits argument. Um, <clears throat> and... Um, I actually don't much like his version of the argument. He doesn't like his version of the argument either, um, which is kind of why I wanted to make this episode about it, where we would kind of maybe 
try some new versions of the argument and give people the tools to experiment with it and uh, and make their own. But the you know we can sort of take it as the empirical claim that Christians and non-Christians are kind of the same. Like, you know, you can't really tell. <laughs> like, you know, um, it's not like Christians all have this, like, you know, reputation that really distinguishes them from non-Christians. You know, like, if I say something like, Mr. Rogers was a nice guy, you know, everyone just kind of knows that's the case. Um, and the basic claim is that if Christianity were true, then Christians as a group would just kind of have the reputation of being more moral than other people, you know. Um, not that it would be the most easily quantifiable thing in the world, but it would just kind of be a judgment that everyone made. Everyone kind of knew it was true. Oh yeah, Christians are, are kind of better people than everyone else. Um, the reason that we would expect that is because built into Christianity are all these theological claims about the transformative power of Christ, you know, the, the power of the Holy Spirit, the fact that, you know, goodness, you know, the good itself and God are kind of bound up in this metaphysical way. And if people are cutting themselves off from that, then you would expect some kind of difference. So, the fact that many people are leaving Christianity because Christianity is proving to be an obstacle to the good is surprising on Christianity's, you know, self-image. Um, but on naturalism, Christianity is a human institution, and like all other human institutions, it would be sometimes an aid and sometimes an obstacle to the pursuit of the good. So, um, that is what we observe. You know, it's a mixed bag, and naturalism predicts a mixed bag, whereas Christianity gives us reason to expect that Christians and Christian institutions would be so noticeably different from everyone else because, again, the transformative power of Christ, you know, the fruits of the Spirit, the fact that we're all just acting according to the flesh, but they also are acting according to the Spirit, um, you know, like, there really are good scriptural and traditional reasons to suppose that Christians should be noticeably different from non-Christians. It is absolutely not the case that naturalism and Christian theism make exactly the same predictions about what Christians would be like. It's the nature of the, fundament the fundamental nature of morality within philosophy. So it's almost as if every argument you talk about in philosophy only devolves down to morality eventually because morality is the only kind of argument that matters there's a certain amount of mattering that goes on with morality whereas you know i could talk about the ontology of of the universe right so it, do we live in an idealistic universe where everything is mental matter mental you know it's a mental construct or do we live in a material universe and uh, 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 you could just say well it doesn't really matter but like it like unless that affects me in some kind of tangible way and by affecting me it really has to be a kind of moral eff eff effect you know it's, it only seems to be that morality is it seems to be that only morality really kind of matters in 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 philosophy which is you know why politics is so important and why when we look at different religious sects and different religions as a whole it, you know they are predominantly frameworks of of moral philosophy is that is that fair yeah, I'd say so. I mean, I, I don't know about, I mean, are, are you saying that like it all, I, I'm not exactly sure what you're claiming, <laughs> but I mean, uh, the parts that I understood made sense to me. Well, it, yeah. well, it's like the idea that when we're talking about religion, so it's the idea that should someone from a religion re really be a better moral agent? Uh, and it's the idea, well, like, you know, if, if a religion's going to matter, 
if being a part of a religion is going to matter, then the only way it really matters is in terms of morality, because that's the only kind of area of, of, of the whole of existence and philosophy that matters. I'd say my personal opinion is, is morality matters and everything else is interesting. And the truth of which is interesting only either in passing or in the way it pertains to eventual moral claims uh, and morality. So, so, you know, that that's kind of when you're looking at, at, at a religion you would expect people of that religion to to say my religion matters right it matters to be a member of my religious organization my religion uh, and but why does it matter who, who cares right well it, it's only going to matter in terms of a, a selfish kind of like it's going to get me to heaven or it will get me to avoid hell but it, well, how do I do that by being good or or like it's either therefore it's either going to be about just blind faith or faith that's going to get me to heaven and get me to avoid hell. Well, that seems kind of like, well, what's the point of believing you know, unless it, on its own, it doesn't seem to matter that much. Okay. The, the, that moral kind of side of the paradigm seems to be something to me that would be more meaningful in, in terms of, I don't know, uh, you know, adhering yeah. to a religion. I don't know. I mean, I, ideally you wouldn't want to be a member of a religion just for, um, <clears throat> soteriological concerns you know to try to avoid some kind of punishment but um <clears throat> it's interesting that when you bring up universalism there are some people who you know seem to think that you know like uh you know well what's even the point of being a christian it's like well i think that there's more to like being a christian than just like avoiding hell it's kind of a strange question um yeah. and Cana to answer canadian catholics question um i'm six foot but like just barely. I mean, like I am like six foot zero point zero 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 zero. Like so I'm just barely six foot. He's asked that on a poll before on his YouTube channel. So I wonder if he's trying to make a correlation between like height and moral position or height. Interesting. And <laughs> thanks, thanks anyway, CC. Uh, uh, there, there's your answer. I am about six foot. Um, I, I didn't realize that you were that tall. But you, you don't. Is maybe it's because there's that gap above your head. I'm always sitting down in these yeah. videos, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, but I will say though, it's completely unfair. I'm the oldest in my family. Um, I'm the oldest uh, sibling and both of my younger brothers are significantly taller than me. Like I'm like the shortest male in my family. My dad is like six foot seven. My brother's six foot four. My other brother's six foot three. So I, I look really short compared to, I'm like, no, they're just giraffes. I'm normal height. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. Why you said that's unfair. You're putting a value judgment on height. That's <laughs> it's not fair to be the oldest and the shortest. This is why I'm an atheist. <laughs> so uh, w within, w when you talk about the um, meager moral fruits argument, you talk about there being three premises, which are set out, which you've set out here, the theological premise, the empirical premise and the moral premise. Should I read them out? Um, I mean, I can just, I, I can't really read that on my screen, but I, I think I know it well enough. Like a theological premise, it, like, so th these are features of most meager moral fruits arguments, as, at least as I'm interested in them. So there's a claim that's sort of built into the theology of the religion about, um, you know, the behavior of its adherents. There's an empirical premise about, you know, just the way the world is, some descriptive fact, and then some moral premise um, often about, uh, you know, some normative judgment. 
Um, but yeah, you can you can go through those where I said it more carefully if you like. Yeah. So the theological premise, roughly speaking, you say, is the claim that Christianity should bear moral fruits. So that's what we've been talking about at the moment. For example, Christianity should be an aid to the pursuit of the good for oneself and for others, and not an obstacle. So, so you would you you should expect Chris, Christians, for example, or any religious. Uh, sect or group of people to be uh, more moral or, or at least that their religion if they believe it's true or if it is true should act as an aid towards gaining uh, moral goodness okay so that's the theological premise then you have the empirical premise which is meant to establish some relevant fact about the world for example christianity has histori- historically been an obstacle to lgbt equality is is the example you gave but you could use any example there so you should say that christianity ha- uh, has been an aid to pro-social um behavior kindness giving to charity has has been um an obstacle to racism Right. These are these are empirical premises that, that, that we, we would need to look at, given the theological premise that we've already set out. And then you have the moral premise, which is which is talking about the basis of the empirical premise, which is affirms a moral fact or normative judgment. For example, LGBT, LGBT uh, equality would be a moral good. Racism is a moral bad. Kindness is good. So therefore, you know, it, it might depend on what what behaviour you're talking about as to as to you know where you go with the argument. So th- there could be argument from certain Christian sources saying, well, actually, LGBT uh, equality isn't good because actually that's a moral sin. And so we get into the long grass and the weeds of like arguing over whether that is actually a good thing. So I, what I said in my argument was I, I used racism as as a as an example for the reasons I said earlier, which is seems to be more universally accepted that racism is bad, or you can talk about generalized pro-social behaviour, kindness, uh, kindness to strangers, giving to charity, and all the all these sort of things that everyone generally agrees are morally good. Yeah, and, and I mean, for what it's worth, um, when I was talking about LGBT equality, all, all I meant was you know sort of legal and social equality such that, um, you know, we don't have different laws for gay people and straight people. Like, I think that's actually pretty non-controversial, and I think it'll only get, you know, more and more widely accepted. But, you know, there's a lot more... I think it would depend on on the type of, for example, Christian or or, or Muslim or whoever you're talking about, because I I would say that that some some would say that actually they shouldn't be afforded because it's a moral harm. Yeah, Uh, no, I, I just mean, like, as, you know, just in the general population of, like, the U.S., for instance, like, I think it is getting more widely accepted, even among Christians and Muslims that, um, you know, that we just shouldn't have separate laws for gay people and straight people. It seems kind of obvious when you when you put it that way. But I, I recognize there's a lot more controversial stuff going on, you know, that's LGBT related, but I, I'm not really thinking of that. I'm just thinking of, like, basic legal equality, which Christianity was, you know, undeniably an obstacle to. Yeah. Uh, and so what this argument, those three things together, you know, form the thought processes that go into say, go into saying that, you know, we would expect let's 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 use Christianity here as, as our example. But actually, you could even be more exact. So you could say Southern Baptist or and then you could be like this particular type of Southern Baptist. Be, they believe that their sect is the the most true version of Christianity, then you would expect those to be far more moral, you know, 
significantly more mor- morally good than people outside of that set, even if they're fellow Christians. We, well, yeah, I mean, you, you wouldn't expect false religions and true religions to produce the same kinds of adherence. Like, when people try to deny the theological premise, it sounds like that's what they're saying. They're saying there should be no difference. You know, apparently Jesus offers no transformational power. The influence of the Spirit has zero tangible effect. And um, cutting yourself off from the foundation and source of goodness itself produces no results whatsoever. Like, that's what you have to believe to deny the theological premise. Um, And I think it's ridiculous. I think that true religions should produce different effects than false religions. Um, But Christians will often, you know, kind of reflexively deny the theological premise they make pretty bold claims um, in this realm until they start hearing an argument like this. And they're like, oh, actually, we're all sinners and we're all depraved. And would I even expect, um, you know, any difference at all? It's like some of you say that atheists can't even be moral, you know. But then when we when we get to this conversation, suddenly they start backpedaling. Well, yeah, when you start presenting the data and we'll talk about the data in a, in a little bit. But what what? When you present this, as you've presented this directly to Christians more than than I have, your experience, and I know you've talked about it already, of those three premises, what, what are the ones that get attacked the most and how? Um, among Christians, like I said, it's they kind of reflexively deny the theological premise, at least at first, but that's just totally untenable in light of Scripture and tradition. Um, do, you think you know, they, do you think they do that because... If they accept it, then it leads in, inexorably to the conclusion that that you hold. Do, yeah. do you think they deny it not out of rational reasons for denying it, but because they need to deny it? Yeah, I mean, it puts a burden on them to um, to be, you know, better than than everyone else, which uh, you know is kind of a a big lift. And um, it's obviously not the case. And I think once they've been sort of made aware that, like, oh, this is evidence against Christianity, then there's kind of this natural um, resistance to it. But I will say, because some people question this whole idea that, like, you know, if Christians were better, that that would be evidence for Christianity. But I, like I said, I, I feel like once you interrogate that, it just becomes so obvious that, you know, true religions and false religions shouldn't produce the same effects, that if you really believe in the, that you were new creatures in Christ, you know, eventually you're going to have to explain what that means. You know, if, if you don't think that there's any tangible difference, I mean, like, this is not some like elaborate ad hominem attack. Like these uh, theories about the world make certain predictions about its adherence. And those predictions are clearly not being borne out. So, yeah, I, I mean, I think that uh, that the, the basis of this argument, which is the theological premise, like that is what people kind of, at least Christians reflexively react against. Um but uh, like I said, I just don't think that's tenable. And something I've noticed among atheists is they're a lot more likely to question the empirical premise kind of following Paul Draper. As I mentioned, Paul Draper made, um, as far as I know, like the original, like he named this argument. That's why I'm still calling it like the meager moral fruits argument. Um, so he doesn't even like his original formulation of it. And I don't I don't like it either because I think he makes these empirical claims that are just way too bold, like um, about, you know, theists like theists and atheists on average like the way that he phrases it it's basically like this sociological claim that would be very hard to substantiate and i'm like well why don't you just make different (laughs) make like you know like so here's the core of the argument you know a theological premise an empirical premise and a moral premise it doesn't have to be the specific ones that draper made um 
so yeah, I think that atheists kind of following Draper often reject the argument on the basis of the empirical premise and say, oh, this is too hard to actually quantify and show, you know, and like, yeah, obviously like you can't like quantify virtue on like a scale from zero to 10 or something like that. It just doesn't work like that. So you have to find some other way of making empirical claims that can actually be, you know, substantiated. And I, I think that can be done. So I, um, uh, I've interviewed Phil Zuckerman, who's a sociologist of religion, very prominent one, written some excellent books. He wrote uh, What It Means to Be Moral. And he also wrote The Non-Religious with Luke Galen and, uh, forget his first name, Pasquale. Shout so, out to uh, Reasonable Doubts. Reasonable Doubts podcast, I've said before, <laughs> the greatest podcast I've made. And again, you, Emerson, it's a, you're a, a fan of that podcast. Just it, just my estimation of you. That's where just, I get the uh, name from, Counter Apologetics. That was Jeremy's yeah. uh, segment. Yeah. So Jeremy Bean, who wrote the foreword to my book, uh, Beyond an Absence of Faith there, Jeremy <laughs> Bean, he was the, um, yeah, there you go. Anyway, whatever. Uh, so uh, Luke Galen on there did the Thinking Like God segment, which is a psychology of religion. And his his segments are always brilliant, that, that talked a lot about this. And in the book, The Non-Religious by, um, by uh, it's around somewhere, um, by Phil Zuckerman, the whole book is basically the whole data, all the data analyses for these kind of questions, which is what are non-religious people more generally more like politically, morally, socially, and all these kind of in all these different dimensions, like depression, suicide, like a whole kind of string of different like behaviors. And what are the theists more generally like? And it's a, it's a very complex picture. There are whole loads of variables. And as you're right in saying, Emerson, that it is difficult to unpick some of these things, but you look for like generalizations uh, and, and you find that actually it is a mixed bag, but in very meaningful ways, certainly on some of those progressive features you're talking about LGBT and all the, these more progressive ideals, atheists come out and the non-religious come out far better than the, than the theists and and th those those ones are easy wins for, for in this uh, the context of this argument for the non-religious yeah and, and like i said it's best to pick things that are common ground but um i think to the chagrin of a, of a lot of believers these things are increasingly common ground um do you mind if I get a glass of water? I forgot to grab one before we started. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I'm just going to talk about the the racism um, thing that I mentioned earlier, which is uh, I in my um, article on the mega moral fruits on only Sky, I talked about how, and this is based on on a book that that came out last year uh, by a chap called Johnson, I think, uh, or is it Jones? Um, I'll find it in a second. Uh, talked about how uh, the more religious you are in uh, in America, it turns out, partic particularly white religious, the more likely you are to be racist or accept racist views. And uh, loads of data to support this. And therefore, the more, the more non-religious you are, uh, the, the less likely you are to be racist and hold racist views. And this is really problematic because you would expect a big old kind of obvious moral sector like this to to be you know if if say christianity is the correct religion you would not expect christians to be more morally 
horrible in terms of racist, you, you know, you, you would not expect them to be more racist than, than non-religious people. That would be a bizarre state of affairs, given that this correct, this religion is supposedly correct, is supposedly correct and true. And, and therefore, you have to explain that. Well, why would God create the world in such a way that, you know, his his adherents happen to be more morally worse than his, the non-adherents? Why is it that Christians in America are generally, uh, you know, and quite significantly more racist? And the more, interestingly, the more they go to church, the more racist they are. So the stats are really, really very interesting, and and it is not good for 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 Christians, you know, for white Christians. Uh, obviously, black Christians in this paradigm, in this context, are, are, are kind of a different kettle of fish. Um, so so yeah, I talked a lot about racism, but as Emerson said, we can talk more generally even about pro-social behaviour, and I've done a whole video on exactly that. But we're going to dip into that in a second. I don't know if you heard much of that, but. Um, do you agree? I did. I, I completely agree. I didn't hear ninety uh, percent of it, but I'm sure it was. I'm sure it was wonderful. <laughs> it, I'll tell you, it, it definitely was. Uh, so, um, w- when we're talking about moral behavior in, in terms of your more generalized pro-social behavior, it gets tricky. So, if you take something like uh, charity, giving to charity. Christians in America give more to charity than non-religious people. So the headline there is, ah, here's something that suggests Christianity is, is you know, f- this argument favours Christianity. But then the devil's in the details. So a lot of this is based on, on self-selection d- biases with data where people are presenting themselves as being X, not actually giving hard data, but it's like subjective. Oh, yeah, I'm kind and I do this and I give it, yeah. But is that actually true? Do they feel they have to say it given the nature? Like, I, I'm Christian, so I feel I have to say that. So there are in when it comes to moral and happiness, um, so- social, scientific uh, pieces of research, these are, are quite problematic areas. But when it comes to charity, it it gets even more difficult because it turns out that Christians, for example, are far more likely to give to charities that are in their own in-group that are, for example, included in this is tithing to their church. So, So giving money each week to their church is then lumped in with charity. And yeah, we give more money to charity. It turns out that an awful lot of that is going to their own organization and establishment. That's like, you know, if atheists suddenly gave way more money than, than, than theist charity, but all their charity was was like American atheists, then how would Christians feel about that in terms of our um, kindness and charitable giving? Yeah. I mean, like if you give money or if you gave money to Mother Teresa, then that would count as charitable giving you know and she's not spending that money on the poor like to the extent that she was you know uh like uh you know tending to the poor what she would offer them was not really any aid or or any like uh any serious help that you would expect someone who wants to work with the poor to offer um but yeah i mean she was like a missionary so yeah if atheists gave money to american atheists like would that would would that be fair game you know giving is giving money to mother Teresa to evangelize is that charitable giving i mean like i don't really think that should count 
And then you, you look at things like the, the famous sort of memes you can see about the starving Haitian child, and it's like, oh, yeah, give them Bibles. You know, the idea that, that Haiti received an awful lot of religious uh, charity, but that came in the form of sending out Bibles and sending out missionaries. Yeah, so that not, not just that. They, I mean, there's also, I mean, I don't want to disparage, like, charities, even, like, Christian charities who, who do good work and actually do help people. Like, I yeah. have a Christian uh, friend and his well, he's not Christian. His broader family's Christian. They adopted a child from Haiti after the after the earthquake. So, you know, I don't mean to say it's all bad. I, I'm just saying that, as as you're pointing out, a lot of this stuff gets lumped in under giving to charity, and it's not exactly common ground. You know, it's sort of in the same category as like worshiping God or something. Yeah. So it turns out that um, the more religious you are in America, and there's interesting issues with this is how do you measure religiosity is it attending church is it some more abstract idea that, that you're more religious if you believe x y or z um or you spend more time thinking about these things what how do you measure religiosity but given that it turns out that, that the higher your religiosity the more you are likely to favor the in-group and the less likely in fact the more likely you are to be aggressive to the outgroup. So it's not just about, hey, I'm nice to people who are like me, but I'm actually aggressive to people who are unlike me. And it turns out that the more religious you are, the less universal your morality is, and the more in-group your morality is, and the more non-religious you are, the more universal your morality is, which if you look at Jesus and the parable of the Good Samaritan, that what the data suggests is that Christians generally the more moral they are the more they are breaking jesus's parable yeah i mean what else is new i mean i mean like jesus pretty clearly didn't want people to have great personal wealth like he didn't want people to be rich and i'm literally not sure that he could have made that fact clearer like i i actually don't know what he could have said that would have made it clearer but christians still don't care about that but, um, you know, you bring up a good point, though, about the, you know, going to church, you know, or like what makes someone a Christian? Because another common response I hear to this argument is sort of a no true Christian type thing. Like, you know, oh, well, there some Christians are, you know, exceptionally good people, which is, of course, true, just as there are many atheists who are exceptionally good people. You know, there are good people and bad people in all cohorts here. So Christians will sometimes respond, though, and say, like, um, you know, those are the real Christians, the ones who, you know, you actually can know they're Christians by their love. Um, and all the other ones are just kind of like not, not real Christians, I guess, or it's, they, maybe they won't make it that strong, but they'll bring up this whole problem of like, hey, lots of people claim to be Christian or they go to church and they're not really Christians, which is definitely the case. You know, not everyone who calls themselves a Christian is meaningfully a Christian, but the fact is we don't have a Christometer where we can wave it around people and figure out who's a true Christian and, and who's not, including them. Um, I can't see into people's hearts and neither can or, the or a true or a true Southern Baptist or a true, you know, whatever version of Christian you're talking about. The same thing applies. Sorry. Yeah. No, no, I mean, all we have to work from is behavior, you know, verbal and otherwise. So if someone says they're a Christian and they go to church, I just don't feel like I'm in a position to say that they're not. And you know, I would add, though, that this, you know, this kind of approach is kind of opportunistic and selective, because if you listen to, you know, Jordan Peterson or Tom Holland, they attribute everything under the sun to Christianity. Like, 
every moral and decent thing is somehow religious, you know, or somehow Christian. And, you know, I mean, so they, they kind of go back and forth between, you know, everyone's a Christian and no one's a Christian, depending on which context they're in. But, you know, my novel idea here is to just take people at their word until given reason to think otherwise. So if people report as Christians, then I'm just going to take them at their word. And of course, the problems with what you're saying there are, you know, the correlation fallacy. So what is really driving those behaviours? And actually, that's something we can talk about in a little while. Um, Before we do so, let's have a little look at, uh, I I compiled a bunch of um, claims to do with morality and and Christianity and and the non-religious in Christians, their morality and their ironic intolerance. And I put this together into a video. So you can check one of my videos. I think the video was like, are Christians more moral than atheists or something like that but here there's just so much data uh i'll try and read a few um little snippets here principles of religious pro-sociality a review and reformulation by um preston et al historically religion and religious belief have often been credited as the source of human morality but what have there been real effects of religion on pro-social behavior a review of the psychological literature reveals a complex relation between religious belief and moral action leading to greater pro-social behavior in some contexts but not in others and in some cases, actually increasing antisocial behaviour. In, in addition, different forms of religious belief are associated with different styles of cooperation. This body of evidence paints a somewhat messy picture of religious pro-sociality. However, recent examinations of the cognitive me- me- mechanisms of belief help to resolve their apparent inconsistencies. So on and so forth. Uh, Sarah Glue, who's a great researcher into this stuff, a religion's role in pro-social behaviour, myth or reality. Um, if you turn to empirical research, the answer to your question becomes more difficult and quite complex on the one hand self-report and this is what i was talking about earlier self-report measures of different aspects of pro-sociality volunteering helping behavior agreeable personality low psychoticism uh, forgiveness valuing benevolence sense of generativity uh, provide systematic evidence in favor of the above theories religious people report being pro-social and they do so across a large variety of the above mentioned ways in which pro-sociality is expressed right so this is the idea that religious people are more pro-social when you get them to self-report their pro-sociality. Uh, interestingly, this pro-social tendency as a function of religion seems to be universal, so that that happens across cohorts and different religions. On the other hand, there are many counter-indications, or at least findings, implying scepticism, especially but not only when we move to studies using measures other than self-report questionnaires. First, the tendency of religious people to volunteer may simply be an artifact of belonging to religious organisations that happen to organise volunteer-type activities. Second, the size of associations between religion and pro-social measures is usually weak. Um, third, not all religious dimensions implies pro-social tendencies. Fundamentalist, orthodox, in some cases intrinsically religious people often show prejudice, discrimination, or at least lack of pro-sociality towards outgroups or people threatening their values. So on and so forth, you know, talks about, um, you know, looking at these di- different uh behaviors with a skeptical eye and and trying to unpick the methodology and a lot of uh supposed um uh, you know a lot of research that supposedly supports religious people being more moral and it's really not not the case at all and then so on and so forth and it just gets more and more and more more um evidence to suggest that the more religious you are, the more likely you are to be kind to your in-group. I mean, I'm really shortcutting it here because there's so much you can see, so much data. Um, you more likely you are to be uh, pro-social to your in-group, and the less likely you are to be kind to your out-group. And in fact, you 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 are more. Um, 
uh, more aggressive. And basically, religion is a is a really good way of supporting tribalism. Sorry, a lot of talking, Emerson. Um, I, you know, there's some other data that I think is pretty commonly known um, that uh, you can find referenced quite a bit in these sorts of discussions. I think it might be useful, actually. Um, I haven't I, I haven't done this yet, but I, I think I might try to make a, another version of the argument that relies on that uh, that data that compares like, uh, you know, societal health and happiness between different countries. And it kind of shows that like, right. The more so, secular countries are, are kind of uh, they score higher on many many indicators of health and, and happiness and so on than religious countries. As if by magic, I have this for you. <laughs> oh, you do have it for you. I have this right here. So um, I wrote an article on this, and Phil Zuckerman wrote an article on this because the new um, happiness reports, uh, UN happiness report, came out, which shows that the top twenty in the top twenty, I mean in the top ten, all of them are like the least religious countries in the world, apart from Israel, uh, which is quite a complex uh, state of affairs. <laughs> because it's got a growing orthodoxy in there, but there are a lot of, like, secular Jews. Um, and and how how do we measure happiness? And this is itself uh, an interesting uh, way that they put it together. It's not just like, are you happy? Yeah, I'm happy. Look, I smile a lot. They do actually count how much you smile a day and all these kind of things. But as I write here, what underwrites a happy country? The variables are plentiful, split into life evaluations, positive emotions and negative emotions. GDP per capita, life expectancy, social support, welfare, and someone to count on in times of trouble, a sense of freedom to make life decisions and thus control over one's life, perceived levels of corruption, trust in public institutions, doing or learning something of interest, smiling and laughing, the aforementioned measures of pro-social behaviour, which are volunteering, uh, kindness to strangers and... Uh, something else I can't remember. Um, uh, well-being, inequality within regions, sadness, anger, worry and stress, and so on. In other words, it's, it's, it's a whole heap of stuff, and I'll read you some more in a sec, but I'll give you a chance to talk about that. Well, a whole heap I, of stuff. I mean, like, there are there are more sort of morally relevant features as well. Like, I, I just pulled out um, this book I have, It's the Best Argument Against God by Graham Oppie. And he doesn't really make a, a meager moral fruits argument exactly, but he does write some things that do directly bear on it. But he pulls up some of this um, some of this data that people talk about comparing, you know, secular and religious countries. So just with rates of burglary, murder, rape, suicide, assault, and uh, you know other sort of um, you know indicators like that, you know, like the happiness stuff is interesting, but I'm not sure it directly bears on the meager moral fruits argument. But obviously, like, you know, rates of murder, rape, and, and burglary. And they also listed software piracy, you know, the worst of all. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty predictable. The more secular a country is, the, the you know, like, it's there's seems to be this inverse correlation between religiosity and, uh, you know, all these negative, negative traits of a society, of, you know, societal health. Um, but, and but that's I just that's just not what you would predict, you know, in a country with, uh, you know, a vast majority, you know, of the population being Christian. But I, th I think I think that uh, you say that you don't know how much these are connected to the meager moral fruits argument. Well, but like I happiness. Say, I would say the, the, yeah, but I would say this is really interesting because you make a parallel argument. So you call it the meager happiness fruits argument or you make it the meager welfare fruits argument or you make it the meager well-being fruits argument so i i think these are fascinating in the fact that they they basically well, follow I the mean, same 
poss- possibly less of a theological premise that could support that sort of argument, though. I mean, well, the moral stuff is pretty clear cut. But but well being, I you know you okay if you if you were although you might not be able to find the exact um, quote in the Bible that supports this, but I'm pretty sure you you could like if 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 you were an omnibenevolent God and you created the universe and you had a set of uh, of entities some of who believed in you and some of who didn't some some who created religions that were all about believing in you surely you would set up the state of affairs such that the people who believed in you would have the greater well-being than the people who didn't yeah, maybe i mean yeah there's you know the joy of the lord you know there's the guy who wrote it is well but you know then there are people like job in the bible like there are lots of people um uh you know in in who are mentioned in scripture and also just you know christian figures who had really hard lives and it, it's i mean it was a pretty common theme in church you know at least when i back when i was going that like uh you know the, being a christian doesn't mean you'll have like a happy life necessarily but but I think that would just be bizarre if you if you were uh, ultimately responsible for everything and and had ultimate power over everything that you would make a scenario whereby do you know what the guys that get it right the guys that that that, that choose the correct state of affairs which is believing in me uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna congratulate you by giving you worse well being than the people who don't. That seems how that seems how God operates, at least sometimes in the Bible. <laughs> but, uh, th- but this being an argument against God, I would. No, I, I don't know. It's consistent with Christian theology. That's why I was saying that, like the theological premise, would be pretty hard to establish because it seems but if, like. But I yeah. think what you're doing is you're po- sorry, I'm interrupting. But what you're doing is pointing out individual figures who might go through that journey to, towards uh, eventual salvation. But but if you were to say that, yeah, but literally for for everyone who believes, not in the people wrangling with stuff just like generally if you're just a general believer you're going to have well worse welfare worse happiness and worse i, don't know. I think this is kind of like prosperity gospel that you're that you're affirming here and i don't really it's not that that's an implausible interpretation of christianity but it certainly is not like uh the only one or the traditional one or anything like that like just the idea that being a christian will lead to greater prosperity and happiness and well-being like um I don't know if, if that's the actual it? message. But, but, but that's the abductive argument. Why wouldn't it? it? It's inconsistent with Christian theology. It's not a prediction of of, uh, the Christ, of Christian theism. I don't think it's inconsistent with theology. I think it might be inconsistent with some of the stories you see in the Bible. But I it's don't not... know. I feel like I heard this all the time when I went to church. Like, you know, you're not promised a good life and a great time if you're Christian. But that's, how you, that's how you explain everyone's woes in their lives. Like, and being able to still believe. Given but it's, it's not ad hoc, though. It seems like it's not ad hoc. It's, like, actually built into the uh, theology, like, that kind of emphasis on suffering. And, and um, yeah, I, I mean, Job is not, like, an outlier. I mean, an outlier is, like, Solomon. But uh, do they su- But the, the idea here is they're suffering. So the idea is if, if people who believe in God suffer more than people who don't believe in God, then you're saying believing in me will make you suffer it's not like people suffer in general and i'm going to explain your suffering that 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 suffering is spread out across humanity what we're now saying is that actually it turns out that christians suffer more and i don't don't know i have no idea i like i just don't think that the theological premise of the like you know meager fruits of well-being or whatever i just don't think that that's really supportable 
to the nearly to the same extent as like a theological premise in a meager moral fruits argument. So um, uh, Phil Zuckerman, in his argument on the same UN uh, report, said, but given the variables including in the study, such as subjective measures of well-being, calmness and feeling at peace, the rankings make sense. If by happy we don't mean ecstatically joyful, but rather experiencing general sense of contentment on that front, the strongly secular nations that are in the top 10 certainly deserve to be there. With their extensive systems of welfare capitalism, they experience the highest degrees of freedom in the world, while uh, also the lowest levels of inequality. They enjoy free or highly standardised sales healthcare, childcare, elder care, education, and so forth. Their societies are extremely safe and humane. No wonder the citizens are the most content and happy in the world. But what exactly is the relationship between these nations' happiness and their secularity? To assert that they are happy because they are secular is not statistically warranted. So again, this is talking about the correlation, uh, causation uh, idea. Um, It would be a bold case uh, of apparent correlation, but not proven causation. That said, for those who persistently claim that religion is a necessary component of a healthy, happy society, insisting that if religious faith and involvement fade, the results will be deleterious. Well, that position is demonstrably untenable. The data presented in this latest World Happiness Report with highly secular nations consistently holding the top positions render the argument that society needs religion in order for its citizens to thrive is simply not true. I mean, I guess it depends what uh, context you're in. Like, are you arguing with like a a Tom Holland type or a Jordan Peterson type who's saying that like in the absence of, you know, believing in God, like everything will just collapse or, you know, like, I mean, what you're saying, it's not like I'm saying it's haram to, to say what you're saying in any context. I'm just saying like in the context of a meager moral fruits argument, we should stick to like, you know, moral behavior and character and, and so on rather than happiness and, and well-being. Yeah. Oh no, and, and I agree. Like this is ma- mainly talking about the meager moral fruits. But my point being that actually, I think you can parallel this argument to present ones which would be which would would be interesting in terms of of all those ideas of well being. Because if I if I was a bene- om- omnibenevolent god. I would find it really hard to justify. I, I think it, it is really hard to justify why an omnibenevolent God would would put the people who get it right and believe in the right state of affairs to suffer more on, on earth and to have lower well-being and lower mm. happiness and be involved in more wars and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, that, I'm, I'm currently thinking about like the Jewish people, um, and how they seem to answer to that description in many, many ways. I mean, like they're supposedly the chosen people, and they've had a pretty rough go of it. Um, but but, that's the, but, but uh, yeah, precisely. But but that has caused them to then post hoc rationalise that with a bunch of biblical stories. Uh, it seems like it's more co- more often than not. You know, the biblical stories are like. You know, and here, here are the Jews having a hard time again. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm not a yeah. Christian, but like, you know, so I don't want to speak on behalf of Christians in with like theological matters. But, you know, I'm just like kind of referencing half remembered things from church and so on. Like, it just seemed like a pretty common thing that like, you know, hey, we're not promising you, uh, you know, prosperity and, and that nothing hard will ever happen in your life. We're, what we're promising you is like subtly different from that. 
I mean, this is why arguably heaven and hell were invented because in that you know intertestamental period where you've got the Seleucid Empire uh, get oppressing um, Jews, but the Hellenistic Jews were you know oppressing the chosen ones, uh, the Orthodox. If you, if you can call them that at the time and then they're like well, how can bad stuff happen to good people and then they looked at the the hellenistic sort of paradigm they looked over to greece and saw like tartarus and hell and the transcendent soul kind of entity and then they're like okay we can explain this now with heaven and hell and and the books can be balanced in this just world it must be a just world somehow and it can only be balanced if we have a heaven where do you know if bad stuff happens to good people on earth it's all right it just get we get compensated with heaven but of course compensation is not moral justification and there are loads of problems with that whole thing anyway but you know i i would argue that so much of the theology we see in the hebrew bible and the christian bible is is a post hoc rationalization and uh, a response to the fact that shit happens and it really shouldn't <laughs> given an omnibenevolent god i mean i think post hoc is is kind of uncharitable i mean i think that they were like earnestly trying to deal with the fact that bad things happen to good people and you know i mean the people who wrote the bible they were just ordinary human beings in some cases just trying to deal with the suffering that's built into human existence so yeah. like you yeah. know i'm not necessarily like that's what i mean by postdoc i mean uh, you otherwise you'd have to admit that job actually existed or job actually existed and had that conversation with G with god like if it and and satan like if you don't believe that then this is a postdoc rationalization of suffering i just uh can we return to that like societal yeah. data real quick um yeah. i i wanted to bring something up because again i i can I don't know why I'm, I'm so sensitive to this type of response, um, but it, I think it's because it comes from atheists and Christians where they kind of question the premise of this argument where it's like, would this even be evidence for Christianity or is this evidence for naturalism? The idea that secular countries, um, you know, like by and large, uh, like seem more moral, you know, when you, when you look at the more fine grained, data about some of these like you know universally agreed upon moral behaviors I'm not even talking about controversial stuff i'm talking about like murder rape burglary theft that sort of thing so um i think that we like look i'm i will happily grant right away that if it were the case that we observed the opposite that like highly religious countries like the united states were far better off than highly secular countries like scandinavian nations then that would be some evidence for Christianity. Like if, um, if wherever there were large groups of Christians, things just were generally better, morally speaking, then that would absolutely be evidence for Christianity because there are, because of the theological premise, there are predictions about the way the world should look built into Christian theology. Um, that would lead us to, to uh, have that expectation. And I'm sure Christians would reference it constantly if there were, yeah. You know, if these secular countries were just like murdering and raping each other nonstop and like Christian countries were just living in harmony. Um, for, again, I totally accept that that would be valid evidence because it's not some kind of weird like ad hominem. It's not like we're appealing to, I don't know, what we want to be true. I, I don't know. Like the way that people object to this is so strange to me. It's it's just very it's very clear. There are predictions being made by this model of the world that are not being borne out just because they involve character and moral behavior. It, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. It doesn't, it's not like an ad hominem fallacy or something like that. But anyway, if this were the case, it would absolutely be evidence for Christianity. And 
you know, we can, I mean, we can go into the weeds of this. Uh, I think we did a little bit last time, but if, if E is evidence for H1 over H2, you know, if the, some line of evidence favors hypothesis one relative to hypothesis two, that means that the negation of that, not E, is evidence for H2 relative to H1. So if we grant that, you know, this hypothetical world I'm talking about would be one in which Christianity is more likely to be true, then the fact that we don't observe that is evidence for naturalism relative to Christianity. The fact that we observe the opposite of what we would expect if Christianity were true is evidence against Christianity. That's a really, really good point and, and well made. Uh, thank you for that. If you've got any um, questions, any super chats, uh, that's really great for for your support and for uh, interacting with us. Really appreciate that. As ever, like, subscribe, share all the stuff that other YouTubers say that I'm now starting to say because I do YouTube or something. Uh, please do all that. Um, what what made me? I I love what you're talking about there because when you talk about things like murder and rape and and great great crimes, as in big crimes, not hey, they're great. Software piracy. Uh, yeah, and 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 that's um, oh dear, I'm a I'm a bad man. Uh, so uh, just um, no, no, if you're out there, no, I've done it. Uh, so these things are very clearly are 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 less in more secular countries. Now we're not saying, incidentally, that oh, well, at least I'm not saying that these murder rates are lower in secular countries because we're atheists generally, mm -hmm. or it's like atheism leads to lower. I mean, the causal variables are, are wide. And, and, and what's really interesting is you can also use this argument across time. So not only across geography presently, and you say, right, the most secular countries in the world, let's take, so, I don't know, Norway, Finland, the Scandi, Scandi countries, uh, have really high welfare, really low crime rates. So morally, you know, we're going to measure them on, on, on crime. Uh, then actually the most secular countries, most non-religious countries are the most moral countries in, in, in this measurement. But we can also measure it across time and say, as we have all become more secular, all, all the countries that have become more more, uh, more non-religious over time, including America and Britain and, and, you know, our two countries, then actually the more we have in the more the less we have become religious the more our crime rates have improved and someone like stephen pinkett in enlightenment now and the angels of our better nature better angels of our nature or whatever whichever way around that is has has pointed this out and say that although there are blips generally if you look over time you would prefer to live now than 600 years ago when we were far more religious but had far worse sort of moral proclamations and crime yeah if you if you were only considering that data then yeah you would definitely want to i think um but maybe there are other considerations but i mean putting that aside um yeah i think that i don't want to be misunderstood as saying that like oh atheists are better people or like you know if everyone becomes an atheist we'll all be better off like no that's that's not the case what i'm saying is that uh it would be evidence for christianity if christian nations were uh, if they scored higher on these measures of like societal health that, that we've been talking about. Um, so once we grant that, then the fact that we observe the opposite is necessarily evidence for naturalism. But um, yeah, I, I'm not, I'm not 
yeah trying and to what, say that yeah. well, oh well they're so good because they're atheists like no yes. no, no that's not and i'm 100 with you so the, I, I would argue that it's because of of greater welfare from from social democracies that produce yeah. education and use enlightenment values and all these other things which interestingly the enlightenment i think is an important part of that um but yeah absolutely 100 and you can look at things like the global peace index that looks at all, all these nations across the world and then plots them for like religiosity against like how much peace they have and and again the more generally the more non-religious the nation the less uh crime and war and violence that there is and the better the more non-religious the nation is the better they they feature on the global peace index yeah um and i will say there's there's one common uh response to this that i that that does come up eventually, like once Christians kind of stop rejecting the theological premise, they're like, okay, okay, I'm done trying to do that. Um, but the thing is, I am better than I was before. So, you know, maybe Christians don't have the kind of reputation as a group that you might expect, but, you know, like William Lane Craig says this, like he says, um, you know, I'm a much better person than I was before I became a Christian. And that's kind of the next step that I see a lot of religious people taking. But, um, you know, just kind of comparing before Christ and after Christ in their own lives and saying that they are better. So, that doesn't defeat the argument because we're still affirming the theological premise and saying that Christianity is a morally transformative religion. You know, they've granted that, you know. Okay, well, if it's a morally transformative religion, if we're all, if Christians are new creatures in Christ, then um, there should still be a group difference. Like, unless this moral improvement just puts them on a par with everyone because they were, like, really, really evil before. <laughs> like, so it's like, no, uh, Christianity is this transformative religion, and it's bringing all these Christians up to the same level as everyone else because they were all really evil before. Like, <laughs> unless that's the case, we should still be seeing group differences, you know? Yeah. Absolutely. And, and and what you then say is is to the William Lane craze of the world who is saying, you know, before I was this, I were, uh, before I was a Christian, I was, you know, a poor version of what I am now. And look how wonderful I am. Again, that this looks rather like self-reporting, which is like, OK, uh, uh, that looks like you're saying you're wonderful. But actually, what's the data? behind this so you can tell us how wonderful you are now and how horrible and evil you were as a non-christian before but really how how can we measure that the truth of that and you know are you how how kind are you to people outside your own in group and i mean look i'm willing to just grant him he says i'm a better person than i was before i say you know what that's fantastic. I'm glad that that's true. But once you admit that Christianity is a morally transformative religion, you should see these group differences. Like as soon as you affirm that theological premise, then you're, you know, you've got to uh, take issue with the argument on some other area. But just on the point about like, you know, justifying the empirical premise, like you were just uh, talking about, um, you know, not relying on self-report data or something like that. I think that um, because this is, uh, you know, some sort of moral argument that like quantifying things, measuring things objectively is going to be a lot harder. So this is kind of why I brought up Mr. Rogers earlier. So I don't think that you need like scientific evidence to prove that Mr. Rogers was a nice guy. You don't need quantifiable objective. um, You know, you don't need some kind of double blind randomized trial to prove, you know, to support the proposition. Mr. Rogers was a kind person and a nice guy. So like, if you ask, how would you go about proving that? What if someone, you know, demanded scientific evidence that Mr. Rogers was a nice guy? Like, look, 
the bottom line is I think that everyone listening to this feels that they are justified in believing that Mr. Rogers was a nice guy, despite the fact that they've provided no scientific evidence, there's no randomized trial, there's no quantifiable anything going on. It's just, you know, it's something that everyone just kind of knows to be true. It's a judgment that we can all recognize. Um, I think that's perfectly fine. Like, it, I think it would be pretty weird, actually, to demand scientific evidence for a claim like Mr. Rogers was nice. So just like, imagine a world where everyone made the same kind of normative judgment about Christians. Like, it, you know, everyone just comes to a similar conclusion. It's just kind of common knowledge that Christians are great, wonderful people, unusually good people. Um, they noticeably stand out from non-Christians, and everyone just kind of knows that. Like, everyone just kind of knows that Mr. Rogers was a nice guy. So, what I'm saying is, that's the kind of world where you would you could definitely say that that would be evidence for Christianity, and the fact that um, everyone is just kind of morally on a par is evidence for naturalism. I, I've really just got like the importance of what you said before about William Lane Craig saying that. Uh, so, you know, pe- as I've written down here, people admitting uh, that Christianity has made them good or claiming that Christianity has made them good. Th- that claim, which is a really common claim, like there aren't there are going to be no Christians that say, oh, do you know what? Becoming a Christian has made me a bit worse like no Christian is going to come on, come on and say I've become a Christian, and it turns out I'm a bit more of a bastard than I was before because of my Christianity. Like so, so therefore, uh, this is this must be exceptionally common, if not universal. I can't imagine, and same for Islam or any religion. I can't imagine any religious adherent is going to come along and say and not say this, which is now I'm a member of this religious organization or this religion. I am a better human being than I was before. Right. So so if you're saying if you are claiming that, even if you're not saying that openly, if you're just kind of believing that inherently, then then that is, as you say, that is prima facie evidence for the truth of the theological premise that that, you know, this religion makes you better. And therefore, if this religion makes you better in general, people who are members of this religion should be better. And which is what it kind of then leads into like Sobek Lord of the Four Corners saying, yep, Paul literally says in Second Corinthians three three eighteen, we are being transformed, literally conforming to and participating in Christ. Empirically, we can safely say this has never been the case. Lol. But sorry, I, a lot of me talking. We, we, I, I was just like had this realization what you're saying was inc- much more important than than I took took from, <laughs> took it for. Yeah, I mean, there are some like kind of stock objections, and and that's one of them. You know, I'm personally a better person, or the uh, you know no no true Christian response, or um, the uh, you know kind of the the empirical challenges, or just like kind of rejecting the uh, <laughs> theological premise, which again just can't be sustained unless they want to massively reinterpret lots of scripture and lots of tradition and. They're going to have to explain what, you know, being a new creature in Christ means exactly, you know, if it doesn't make you a better person. I didn't used to kick puppies, but since I accepted Christ, I can't help it. Yeah, I've been transformed by Christ. I've been transformed into a serial killer. Yeah. <laughs> that's usually um, not what they mean. Yeah, but, it, you know, I think I think, I think think that's a really important point, again, to just reiterate what I just said, that, that you know, I think the, the the theological premise must must surely intuitively be what everyone believes, unless they're trying really hard not to believe it because it's convenient for them not to believe that because the argument then fails. 
Yeah, when when Trent Horn talked about this argument on his podcast, um, he didn't even try to reject the theological premise. Like he challenged it on empirical and moral grounds. He said, you know, we're often going to disagree about what is or isn't moral, and you know that's true, but we often don't. So you know, it's it's easy to stick to those cases, um, and also empirically, some of these can be difficult to justify some of these arguments because they make really grand, essentially sociological claims. Um, but you know, my whole point during the episode is like hey, you can play around with this organization, the theological, empirical, and moral premises, and, uh, you know, experiment with different versions of those, and you can make good, meager, moral fruits arguments. Just because Draper's, you know, made these kind of exorbitant empirical claims that can't really be substantiated, it doesn't mean that, like, every meager, moral fruits argument has to do that. But, yeah, I, I appreciated that Trent Horn didn't really even try to <laughs> deny the theological premise. So, um, uh, Mitch Mazarol. Uh, as he says, he's French. I've got a degree in French, but uh, I don't ask me to speak it anymore. That's a long time gone. Um, uh, curious where the data sets diverge, Christian versus naturalistic. If there is some common ground to be found, what is it? Uh, morally? I mean, murder is bad. Rape is bad. Um, I mean, also increasingly with the younger generation, I mean, it seems like overwhelmingly the younger generation of Christians um, is very pro-LGBT, like in a way that's kind of weird to me. Like I went to a Christian campus in the last couple of years my brother, my younger brother was like uh, looking at some colleges. We were actually at Calvin College, which is where Alvin Plantinga was based out of, along with Notre Dame for a long time. And um, man, it was weird because uh, it was just very pro LGBT and like a lot of, it just wasn't, it wasn't exactly what I expected to see. But yeah, there's, there's a big difference between like Zoomer Christians and older Christians, which in a way that I, haven't quite grasped. I'm, I'm 27. So I, uh, it's like, they're just young enough where I'm just like weirded out by the things they're doing. <laughs> but but yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I, I've spoken to a number of Christians who, and, and look, looked into this and there's good research to suggest that people, and this is what you started off the talk by saying, which is that people are leaving Christianity. One of the main reasons I think that, that people are young people are leaving Christianity is because it doesn't fit with the moral zeitgeist. You know, the idea that, 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 the moral landscape has changed now and people find x y and z much more morally acceptable or morally neutral or morally good or whatever and and that christianity or their religion doesn't doesn't fit in it doesn't allow for that and so one has to go and it turns out that, that people are leaving organized religious christianity yeah. largely on account of the fact that it, it, it the moral fit does isn't there yeah it's, it's not enabling them to pursue the good for themselves and for others. And the way that, you know, Christians will sometimes present this to me when I'll ask them about their own personal views conflicting with the views of the church or official teaching or, or what have you, you know, what I hear sometimes is like, yeah, you know, I don't really see what's wrong with, you know, gay marriage, but the church does teach that it's wrong. And you got to lean on, you know, the church's teaching and not your own understanding sometimes. Um, and, uh, I just lost my train of thought cause someone buzzed my door, but, uh, I think it was a mistake. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I was going to go back to just before we start sort of, um, uh, uh sort of wrapping uh, the, Oh, oh, sorry. I, I just yeah, regained yeah. my train of thought. Um, so what I was, uh, what I was saying is, um, there, there's a limit to that. So like, yeah, I understand a good Christian, you know, their own understanding is not going to perfectly line up with the moral teachings of the church. And, um, but it, it's not like with these younger Christians, it's just like one thing and then they're gone. 
it's like it's a cumulative it's a cumulative thing so they what's going on is that there's one thing that doesn't really uh morally sit right with them and then there's another thing and another thing and what i'm saying is everyone has this line it's not just these uh you know uh sinful lgbt affirming christians it's um everyone you know even the most even the staunchest traditionalist is going to have some kind of limit where the church is teaching something that is so contrary to your moral intuitions if this just keeps happening over and over again eventually you're you're gonna say maybe the church is wrong yeah so if if you have like a hundred different moral positions right and you say right is this good or bad and you say right it's good okay so we would expect christians for example southern baptists for example to to be score better on this if this if this and you go down you really would you know if 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 the belief was true you really expect i don't see there being a good reason why all of those shouldn't shouldn't feature more prominently for the religious versus non-religious person or but you know but but it's either messy or that actually you know religious people score score negatively and and as you say that when when that happens over and over again you've got to start wondering whether you know they've got it right yeah you know i i guess i just wanted to say that in defense of christians who eventually break away from the christian tradition because of the moral teachings of the church it's like they're not um different from anyone else like what what i'm saying is everyone has their own breaking point where if the church started teaching something that was contrary to your moral intuitions like as those things start to stack up you will eventually just leave um you'll go to another church or another religion or you'll just walk away altogether there's nothing irrational about that there's nothing wrong with that i mean what i'm saying is at the end of the day we're making these moral judgments and to a, to a large extent, we are leaning on our own understanding because that's all you can do. And this is where it's interesting, where it gets a bit more complex, arguably, if you want to take it there, which is where I've been, been doing a lot of work on divine command theory recently, which is to say that, and this is linking stuff together with the Enlightenment, where we start doing some moral reasoning a lot more and then that integrating with politics and law and and society you start seeing improvements across the board because we're doing moral philosophy rather than relying on divine command theory and it gets even worse for the for the christian in this case or for the theist because you know moral reasoning is is a better way of 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 you know arriving at a moral conclusion than you know because god said so um, and so I'd, why, what I'm saying here is that you can you can come at many direct you can go off in many kind of like rabbit holes with the MMF argument that we've been talking about in terms of you know well, why is it that 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 non-religious people are featuring better on these moral proclamations it's because we're using our faculties of moral reasoning uh, and 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 enlightened philosophy to do that you know and and that's what you'd expect if you use moral reasoning i guess i don't really know where i was going with that but it's, it sounded good in my head um so uh i just wanted to uh go back to um 
uh, my piece on happiness, which is to say, uh, from the UN report again, these, so there are three markers. So, so one of the editors, John Helliwell, told CNN Travel, the big surprise was that globally, in an uncoordinated way, there have been very large increases in all three forms of benevolence that are asked about in, in the Gallup World Poll. These three markers of benevolence, donating to charity, helping strangers and volunteering, have all seen an uptick in 2021 compared to 2020 or before the pandemic. And for helping strangers, the move has been particularly positive. Uh, and again, to go back to, you know, you can't argue that the that, that, that helping strangers, you know, if Jesus has said that in the Good Samaritan and not not just strangers, but actually people in the out group that's p- particularly a story about helping people who are in your out group who you otherwise don't like and that's exactly where the data looks that the more religious you are the less well you do on that as we talked about before i just wanted to revisit that because there was a little quote there but it, you know you can't really argue with the data to su- suggest that actually the more religious you are the less nice you are to the people in the out group I, I haven't looked into that. I wouldn't, um, you know, I wouldn't uh, try to go out on a limb without having, um, you know, looked into that sort of research myself. I mean, I'm so uh, skittish about, you know, a lot of this social psychology and um, sociology. It seems like with the replication crisis and with, um, I don't know, just some of their methodology and like their whole approach in the last like several decades, it just kind of, I, I just wouldn't believe anything unless I looked into it myself. Not that, that I'm saying you should. I mean, I know you have. I'm just saying. Yeah, that's what I love about the the book, the non-religious. So Zuckerman, uh, Galen, and Pasquale, they are talk a lot about methodology and about well, this is a you, you know the the headline of of this you know research is hey that's really great for this group of people but you've got to look at the methodology and the devil's in the detail and if the, you know this is self-report or that one it turns out that uh, you know they're giving charity they're giving money to their own and this and that and so you know that that's why hopefully i've chosen data when the, the that takes into account that kind of stuff especially as i say reading that book which i know you've got that book but you've you've not read it is that right? I got it a long time ago because I was a listener to Reasonable Doubts and yeah. Luke Galen was a co-author. But yeah, I, I never got around to reading it, sadly. Yeah, no, it's really good. I mean, it's it's, it's very much a data-driven book and it's, it's, if you like that kind of stuff, then, yeah, that, that, but I, I absolutely love it. Um, so as we draw to a close, thank you for all your support, everyone out there. If you've got any uh, questions, please get them in. Any super chats will be super, super appreciated. Uh, is there any other any other nuggets you want to bring into to play with this argument or where can this argument also go or any connected arguments um you know honestly i'm kind of waiting for uh substantive responses to the argument before i make another episode about it um so a, a lot of what we talked about here is kind of a preview for for what i plan on talking about about um, you know, the common claim that like, oh, I as an individual am better than I was before being a Christian. The idea that like, this shouldn't even be evidence one way or the other, because we're talking about moral character. And that superficially sounds like some kind of ad hominem. Um, you know, so there are Christian and atheist versions of that particular objection. Um, well, yeah, you, and just sort can of... That, can, you, can you just unpick that a little bit? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, so, you know, the standard definition of ad hominem is like when you're going after the party advancing the argument rather than the argument or the idea or whatever. And that superficially seems like 
what we're doing here with the meager moral fruits argument. But as I was explaining earlier, you know, Christian theism makes certain predictions about its adherence compared to its non-adherence. Um, that's the whole theological premise. So it's not that hominem. I mean, people are way too trigger happy with these whole like informal fallacies anyway. It kind of leads yeah. to superficial criticism. And it's just, I wish people would just kind of knock Policy it off so much with the, yeah, playing the, playing the fallacy gotcha game. Um, Cause many things superficially look like fallacies that are actually perfectly good inferences. Um, but yeah, this is kind of one of those cases where it's like, no, look, clearly it would be evidence for Christianity if its predictions were borne out relative to naturalism, right? Like naturalism makes certain predictions, Christianity makes certain predictions about what we'll see in the world. And if Christianity's predictions better line up with reality, that's evidence for Christianity. So that's all we're talking about here. Yeah. So just because it's like, you know, um, prima facie about the character of the people involved, that's not an ad hominem argument. It's, people just don't know what a lot of these fallacies even are. But yeah, so I mean, like I said, there are Christian and atheist versions of that objection. Um, you know, atheists will say, even if Christians were better, that wouldn't matter. Yeah, it would. Um, because again, we're just talking about the predictions of Christianity versus the predictions of naturalism, which, you know, according to naturalists, Christianity is a human institution. And human institutions um, produce mixed results, you know, like they produce good things and bad things. And um, again, Christianity uh, also predicts that uh, Christian institutions and Christians would form sort of a mixed bag, but they, it makes definite predictions that diverge from the predictions of naturalism about the character of its adherence. I mean, that's undeniable. Like, I don't, it, It's really amazing that anyone tries to deny it. But, um, and then also just some more basic stuff I plan on addressing about sort of how we know anything, like, you know, sort of basic epistemology, like, are we allowed to make claims about the world without providing uh, randomized trials and objective, quantifiable scientific evidence? Um, I'm firmly on the side of, yes, <laughs> you can make uh, judgments about the world without providing that sort of evidence. Um, but I think that some people uh, kind of naively think that you know, it has to be scientific evidence, it has to be objective and quantifiable, or else it's not really good evidence. It's not really a justification for some belief. And that's just flat out wrong. Well, um, see, that's yeah. a good segue to what Mitch has said here, which is what's your hot take on the weight and abductive argument like this should be given? I find it somewhat persuasive, given that this leans on a data driven approach. Uh, I would intuitively agree with that as in it, 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 it works in its premises, and it is supported somewhat by data mm -hmm. and so therefore the way it should be given it should be seen in part of the cumulative case of other abductive arguments to say like on its own if, if there's nothing else and this is just like you've picked out one jelly bean then you're like well this jelly bean on its own doesn't tell you that like if this is the only jelly bean i've got i'm probably better off believing that god doesn't exist but really that's a very small sample size so almost that you can have a meta argument here about like, you know, sample size and data, you know, in about like arguments here. So which is interesting, like empirically speaking, this is only one ar ar argument. This is a data set of one. So but when you start looking at like 20, when you've taken 20 beans out, when you've got 20 different arguments and pretty much all of these better support um atheism which is kind of where paul draper went with this like this is one argument out of many then it's fairly strong or they yeah. are fairly strong would you agree 
Yeah, I mean, I think that strictly rationally speaking, this does move the needle in favor of naturalism. Like, I think that this argument is stronger than the argument from scale, to give an example. Like, that's an argument for atheism that works, but I think just like barely perceptibly moves the needle, like in favor of naturalism. As in, you're saying the universe is so big. Universe is big. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And then on the other end of the spectrum, we have like, you know, Draper's uh, argument from evil you know, like that being very powerful abductive evidence. And, um, you know, so I think that this argument is weaker than like um, some arguments from evil or soteriological discord, but it's more powerful than like the argument from scale. So it does move the needle a little bit, strictly rationally speaking. However, there's an additional element to this argument that is sort of pragmatic in nature. Um, You know, because we are uh, just trying to figure out what's true about the world. That's what we've been talking about. But if Christianity is being an obstacle to the pursuit of the good for yourself. Th- that's a pretty good reason to not be a Christian. Again, not because like, oh, well, I've uh, rationally assessed the evidence and this, since this is more likely on naturalism than Christianity, I have become a naturalist. Like, yeah, no, that's, that's great. This goes, this goes it, back to the mattering I was talking about earlier. Like yeah. if, if this, if, if really, this is all about mattering and really if existence is all really about morality, then actually th- th- that means that this, this argument is slightly stronger than maybe it otherwise would be. Okay, I think I get what you, I think I get what you were saying now. Um, yeah, I mean, the pursuit of the good is one of the most important aspects of human existence. It's not some trivial concern like, okay, well, first we'll do our Bayesian calculus, and then at the end we'll try to figure out how to good live a good life. It's like, no, I think you might have that backwards actually. Like, if Christianity is actually inhibiting you, and it's an impediment to living a good life, like a moral life, is what I mean then you shouldn't be a Christian. Like, I mean, just on pragmatic grounds. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm I pretty sure I would diverge from some atheists in that because I'm totally happy to say that, you know, if Christianity, and by the way, this is a two-way street. If Christianity really makes you a better person, improves the quality of your life, that's a good reason to be a Christian. It's not a decisively overwhelming reason, but the idea that it's off limits, that it's not a that's out of bounds it's like some kind of consideration that you shouldn't care about that's just insanity like the idea that you shouldn't care about stuff that matters about like living a good life like the idea that that shouldn't factor into what you believe and what you do that's it's just pure confusion and i I wish people would step out of it i you this is fascinating because you could come up with a really cool like policy thing where it was you say like in education policy you say right we know that if children learn to read and have a love of reading, right, then they go on to uh, aspire to greater things and achieve better and have much better life successes and all, so- all sorts of different domains, right? So reading is seen as really important. So we say to children, you really need to read. And in fact, we're going to test you so- on your reading capabilities at this, this age and this age and this age because we know how important it is to flourishing as a human being right so if you, if you then say we've looked at all the data and it turns out that non-religious people on balance are, are are better moral agents than religious people we are now going to press at school that you shouldn't be religious and in fact we're going to test you at this age and this age and this age to make sure that you're not religious i mean it sounds like communist like the soviet <laughs> union but but this that's a really interesting argument that you could actually generate some kind of like if if on if on average if we, if we looked at all the data it turns out that non-religious countries are are better than you know morally better than religious countries and then therefore we can make a a statistical you know conclusion that it's better to be a non-religious country even if it's only correlating 
to these things, then you know you could you could you could start driving out um, religion from a policy point of view. But I, don't I mean, really I think it's I think you have to take it on a case by case basis. I don't think that um, there's any like one size fits all. Like Christianity is good for everyone or bad for everyone. Like, yeah, um, yeah. It, it does seem to be good for some people, and it does seem to be genuinely bad for some people. Like, it's you know it's kind of hit and miss. But you know, I. <laughs> but the point is, if it's more hit than miss, or more miss than hit, that's the point. I don't. I don't think that's a very good. I think we should, this should just, just should be left to uh, <laughs> individuals <laughs> to figure out, uh, you know, what's best for them. Um, but uh, no, I. I mean, it, it, I think it should be left to individuals to, as to whether their kids should read or not. Uh, well, I think that's a little less controversial than religion. I mean, the, the data is not clear cut. Like, okay, so should it be left to individuals whether their child gets adequate nutrition? No, um, that's required. If you don't do that, then, you know, you're, you're not meeting your basic uh, requirements as a parent. But if you um, but it, choose but to it's, raise your, it's just not, it's obviously not the same as, as but is, is it not? Is it not? So it's so not the same. Am I playing, uh, no, okay. So if, if the data is in that in the US, as a white Christian, you are statistically more likely to be racist. Then, then is there not a case to say? No, know, there's no case. <laughs> you're, you're, you're statistically, actually, like as a parent, it's probably better off that I don't, because uh, you know. I mean, there's a part of me. So, if we're just off in like philosophy, thought experiment land, I am. That's what I'm doing here. Okay, well, then, like, I'm fine with entertaining things like this, like just for fun, even though I'm still totally against it, even if we're off in thought experiment land. But if we're talking about like any kind of real world policy here i i would march in the streets against the kind of thing that you're suggesting where it's like you know because i'm i'm completely pro-religious freedom at the end of the day you should not be like yeah like you shouldn't be spied on i am as well as as long as you know well actually i'm i'm yeah 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 you shouldn't be uh you know i mean you shouldn't I, I don't know what you're actually saying, but like you shouldn't um, Not one, ding parents. Okay, yeah, you shouldn't count it as a strike against parents to raise their kids religious unless there's like directly abuse involved, which you know sometimes yeah. there is. Um, you shouldn't be spied on just because you're Muslim. Like there are all kinds of like yeah. uh, you know religious. There, there's a religious freedom angle to this that I'm like a firm believer in. Um, that would kind of you know on principle, I would kind of oppose anything that we would talk about going forward. <laughs> But it gets like pretty interesting that if you if you're and I'm not saying it does, but if your religion said right, uh, and it, arguably it does, right? So the Christian religion arguably says homosexuality is a sin, or the act is so that so you get around it, it's the act that's a sin and not not like the person or whatever. But like if it if it uncontroversially, incontrovertibly said homosexuality is a sin, and we're like okay, uh, as a progressive, that's a real problem. If your religion says that, then actually. It is better off. That, that is a real moral harm to society adhering to that religion. So you know there is it, this is this is the situation we're in, which is like we argue that there are certain moral claims in that religion that are really problematic, and then the, the religious person says they're not problematic, that that that's a good, or the religious person says yeah they are problematic, and I justify my religious belief in this way and kind of can can harmonise those biblical quotes by saying context, 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 or whatever. Um, so, so what, what should we do about that other than just argue against them? 
Yeah. Well, I, I, you know, uh, it's, it's interesting that we make policy decisions or, or, or educational decisions from certain angles and say, well, we shouldn't do this. And I can imagine 50 years time, we might be saying stuff like, you know, vegetarianism is now a policy within like, all schools are going to be vegetarian. You know, you can imagine like a hundred years time, actually we, we've moved past that we're post meat, meat societies or whatever. But, but yeah, in, in the Bible, there's still like all this stuff and to do with meat eating and sacrificing animals. You know, I, there's a tension between moral progression and, and, you know, adhering to a religion that holds this holy book high and mighty. And and we're happy to make policy decisions here, but then freedom of religion means, oh, you can still believe in that book, that book even though I find that book really morally problematic. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's the best society, that's the best societal organization is freedom of religion and freedom of expression and, and that whole sort of, you know, broadly liberal approach to things. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I think that it follows from those kinds of liberal principles that you shouldn't, for instance, have separate laws for people with different sexual orientations. Yeah. Um, so I think that that was like kind of an illiberal law that we had. Um, and, uh, you know, we got rid of that, you know, so I'm, I think that that's not like, a, you know, I don't think that's inconsistent with the kind of liberal um, pro freedom of religion approach that I'm saying. Because you don't which have is, to get gay married. <laughs> which is to say, a liberal legal law trumps a religious religious law. Yeah, no, I, the thing is, it sounds like you're talking about, like, positively going further than the kind of, like, more neutral liberal approach that I'm talking about. Yeah. yeah. I'm not which advocating I'm that. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering. I'm <laughs> out loud. Yeah, because, no, I, 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 I'd have to think about it a hell of a lot more. But, you know, I, I, it does sound intuitively wrong to, to produce some kind of like like a state religion type approach. But it's not. It's, it's like say, what I'm trying to say, really what I'm trying to talk about is that there is this ongoing tension of, of competing rights. So when you have a, a right to freedom of expression religion, but your religion claim makes a claim a really dodgy moral claim and then i have this right over here in the domain of that moral claim then we have a tension going on here because yes you have the right to express your religion but no that religion is morally problematic in this particular claim that i find uh, abhorrent whether yeah, you go i mean i think that john locke's arguments for religious toleration and, and some of the you know liberal principles that he was he was just applying to you know warring religions like i think that also applies to us and to everyone else like um so i'm, I'm very against you know state atheism which sounds a little bit like what we're talking about yeah. and uh, and also uh, like state religion and you know yeah. like uh, that's i think that some of the classic arguments for liberalism in this area um those hold not just for warring religious sects who can't agree on what God wants or what's moral, immoral, but also, you know, non-religious sects are in the mix now. And it's the same. I think you can just make these same exact arguments. So I suppose what I'm saying, really, what, what I'm really saying is you can believe what you like. But if you if you believe morally problematic things, that's not OK. Right. Which is broadly where I'm at in, in everything. Now, in, in Britain, it's really interesting. So you could you, we have faith schools here. You've got secular country yet. You're a secular country with more religious people. We're an apathetic country, but we're not secular, right? And so 37%, 37% of our primary schools, elementary schools in, in the UK up to age 11 are faith-based, are, are, are run by faith institutions. So Catholic faith, Catholic school, C of E school, whatever. So it, interestingly, in those schools, 
the uh, the um, they are allowed to opt out of human rights legislation. So the idea that you've got universal human rights, a Catholic school, uh, they're not universal. So in Britain, a Catholic school can sack a head teacher or a teacher for being gay. They are legally allowed to do that. So this is what, like, this to me is a huge problem. And I'm sure you probably agree on this point: is that that shouldn't be allowed, right? Universal human rights should be universal, right? We the, and 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 put into law. And if if that is morally good, that should be you know legally ratified. And the fact that you can you can discriminate someone and and do that on account of your faith is kind of the problem I'm talking about here. It's like it's like that shouldn't be allowed. Like the law should trump the religious. Um, you know, you know, you have picked out a gray area case, though, because like, what if a Catholic priest was fired for secretly being a Muslim? Like, that would seem perfectly fine, but that would be discriminating against someone because of their religious beliefs. But it seems I, like once you go in the realm of these religious institutions, like the, the rules do seem a little different. Well, I can. Uh, I'm actually. <laughs> I'm legally bound to confidentiality here so saying this on a youtube video is probably ill-advised but i was once a teacher in a catholic school and then i wasn't a teacher in a catholic school and you can probably join the dots there and it almost became a landmark legal case in the uk um and it didn't and it's a very long story and i'm not allowed to talk about it but um but yeah it is a gray area and um and it's a gray area in a very bad way and yeah. and it should not be a gray area it absolutely should not and this is this is the tension between well well we have a right as a religious organization to these to to make claims to this moral area and it's like but hang on no you shouldn't have a right to do that because that goes against the rights we set out here and and we set out very good moral reasoning and you are now claiming to trump that, and actually, I'm saying no. Th- th- the law should trump the moral, the the, right. the religious moral pro- proclamation. Well, I mean, I think we can like we can identify two cases. Like, even within a religious school, um, someone should not be fired for uh, I mean, for breaking some law, you know, that is you know enforced by the state, like pedophilia or something like that. Yeah. Like, if they break that law, it's like, well, we're a religious organization, you know, we're Catholic, so we don't see a problem with that. It's like, yeah, we know, but you still have to follow the rules. Um, but then on the other hand, you know, if a Catholic priest gets fired for secretly being Muslim or something, that doesn't intuitively seem wrong to me, even though it does kind of violate this, like, liberal principle of freedom of religion. So it's like, on the one hand, you know, so th- those are two cases. And I think that, like, um, you know, being fired for having the wrong sexual orientation, like whether you think it's closer to the Muslim case or closer to, um, you know, the case of breaking some other law that the state enforces. Um, I think that's like, a, you know, that's where a lot of debate occurs. But, Do you, know you know, what I tend to that think moral that problem completely what, what solves it is not having state run faith schools. But that's not your oh, problem. You don't have that over there. So that would oh, be sold. That yeah. Sold. Yeah. No, we're on. We're in total agreement. I, I'm against state atheism and state run religious schools. I think it's kind of, you know, it's sort of in the same category as like monarchy to me, where I'm like, that's a thing over there. Like, I mean, I know it's like a subtly different country, but it's um, it's just totally bizarre to me that you have like a queen. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. It does. Yeah. It is weird. But hey, 
makes us cool or something right um so as we draw to a close and thank you for for everyone for uh like we've just had a wander through a thought experiment where i almost advocated state atheism and like gulags for anyone believing Right. Uh, look, look, all we're saying is that if parents are religious, they should have their children taken away. Okay. That's <laughs> all we're saying. <laughs> true. I mean, not true. Uh, so, uh, but, you know, there's a thought experiment to discuss on another day. Right. As we come to an end, mate, I didn't do this on the last interview with you or chat, whatever you call this. Um, I'm going to do some quick fire for you to get to know. Did I do this last time? I didn't think I did. Quick fire, so. asking you some questions. For example, what's your favorite nonfiction book you've ever read? Um, it's probably something by Kurt Vonnegut, but I would have to choose between um, between those. I guess God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater might be my favorite Vonnegut book. Um, and he's my favorite fiction author. Did you say fiction or nonfiction? I said nonfiction, but... <laughs> oh, sorry. Okay. You can ask whatever <laughs> question you think I said. <laughs> uh, my favorite nonfiction book is um well for a long time it was the big picture by sean carroll that book had a Love huge that. influence on book. me um it still influences me even though i disagree with uh, a lot of it now and i used to agree with pretty much all of it um i used to agree with practically everything and he said everything he said in there except he's he was a compatibilist and i was a free will skeptic at the time and then now i think he's wrong about a bunch of other stuff but i'm with him on <laughs> compatibilism but, see i'm a conceptual yeah. nominalist and he's basically sets out a case for conceptual nominalism in that, in that book without like calling it that and, and that's why i really like it but yeah carry on um okay but that's that's what it was and now i'm trying to think okay favorite non-fiction book um man that's that's tough because you said you say favorite um, okay, and then for for a long time after the big picture, it was this book, Things That Bother Me by Galen Strawson. Um, and I feel like I've moved past that one a little bit where it's no longer my favorite book, but that was my, my favorite book for a long time. It's it's um, just like a collection I, of essays. I love, I love philosophical people. It's like, you say favorite book. <laughs> well, what does favorite mean? Like, before I answer this question, let's just talk about terms. <laughs> what does what mean? I mean, does what mean Why? <laughs> anyway so, so many there are so many questions we have to answer before i can answer the question of what is my favorite book yeah, um no so, I, I i really don't know but i mean those would be two that yeah. are you know in the running i guess um or, or at least definitely were previously um favorite books fiction you've said is kurt, kurt vonnegut so mm -hmm. Uh, that's answered that so uh, by the way congratulations on the haircut i did congratulations <laughs> wrong word uh you've right. clearly had one um i don't know why i thought that interesting uh Thank you. so um uh it, if you could see a band dead or alive that you've never seen before who would you who would you go and watch tomorrow uh kind of a boring answer but i really like john mayer a lot um i was like obsessed with him in high school which was you know a long time after he was cool and relevant yeah. so in like he used to be someone who like basically only teenage girls listened to and then like 20 years later i came along and i was just like i love it well because i i play guitar and um it used to be you know before i cared about philosophy and science the only thing i really cared about was like playing guitar and like uh doing music stuff so and john mayer is like one of the greatest uh, to ever do it so uh, there's looks like you got a fight on your hand because apparently the answer was Bauhaus. Oh, so, I don't know uh, who that is. <laughs> that's a ger German, um, uh, like, 
and 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 as far as I know, like uh, and the synth synth rock band. But there you go. I just assumed um, it was going to be some like death metal band because those people are always very quick to share their opinion. <laughs> okay, well, it's you're a guitarist. If you could play a song that you can't play at the moment, what would it be? Oh, um, Canon Canon and D by Jerry C. There's like a 12 year old YouTube video. Um, one of the first ones to go viral. Like this is like old, old YouTube. Um, but there's this, uh, I don't, I don't know who he is or what he's up to, but there's this Asian guy named Jerry C or at least that's his like YouTube channel. And he played a rendition of Canon and D and I love that. I mean, I, I heard it when I was like 11 and I never really learned how to play it. I learned like little bits and pieces, but yeah, I, I love that. So if I could just, if I could learn that, then I would be happy. Okay, so you're just about to be executed for um, for being a, a religious child of a, a, pair, a couple of parents, <laughs> yeah. and uh, <laughs> this is in the new new society that I've just, <laughs> just created, and uh, you're just about to be executed. But you are treated to your last supper. Uh, what 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 meal would you have? What would be your last meal? Cheese pizza. Sorry. Cheese pizza. <laughs> So that's the honest answer. I'm sorry. Like, um, if it has to be really good, obviously it has to be like New York style. But like, yeah, man, that's that's like I have to tell people that I'm a vegetarian and not a vegan, basically because of cheese pizza. Like, that's like 95 percent of the reason why I'm not a vegan. Not because I mean, like, I just you know, I, you, I apologize. You know, I know I, it's I, not a good reason, but I'm a I'm a vegan plus fish, so I that I am <laughs> slightly morally better than you. But then I take on a fish, uh, which is morally worse. Morally, I, I did it started for health reasons due to my MS, but um, I I then adopt it as a moral thing. So now it's definitely mm. moral, and I can just hold it over people like you. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. And the the thing that sucks is like dairy is like one of the worst things. It's not quite as bad as like chicken, but it's still yeah, it's like, it's worse than people think. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, the idea that you have to basically kill all male chickens and kill all male like cows is yeah. But anyway, I don't want to get onto that whole thing. Uh, but but cheese is a problem. Although yes. Domino's now do you know who they deliver the decent vegan pizzas? So um, no, there's that. no such thing. They they have not figured out the cheese technology over there and at the it's, vegan headquarters. <laughs> true, it's getting better. But yeah, yeah, I'm broadly with you. Um, so. Uh, uh, other questions uh the usually what i end with is this one you are just about to have your face eaten off by a bunch of pea zombies um <laughs> we we don't know whether they are having subjective experiences or not but they are going to bite your face off so you run down to your uh, zombie shelter and you, you lock yourself in there for a month but you, you're allowed to take three people with you who aren't your family or any, any friends or anything like that so uh you can't get away with say oh my, my mom and my girlfriend or whatever like, <laughs> stuff, you know that's out so you can take three people to hang around with the, with in a for a month in this fallout shelter who would it be dead or alive dead or alive okay um jesus muhammad <laughs> um Fight. okay three people um man this is such a good question i'm taking this way too seriously but um i suppose i would and people uh, in the comments put who the three that you would you would take with you into that fallout shelter. I'd be interested in what in what you think. While um, while while I take this answer so so seriously, <laughs> I mean it's not it's not literally going to happen, mate. You, you're right. You, you're <laughs> um, okay, well, the thing is, I need I need like 
I mean, not to make things too explicit, but like, I need someone interesting. I need obviously like some beautiful woman. And, um, obviously. and I don't know who the third would be. I, I'm thinking like, so I, for some reason, it can be the same, by the way, someone interesting and a beautiful <laughs> woman. It's like, that, that's really, I thought you were progressive. Uh, mutually exclusive categories. I mean, I, I guess if we're going to, no, no, I'm just kidding. Um, I guess, uh, God, this is so hard. This is the hardest question you asked me because, um, I guess I would want Bertrand Russell, and this is just the first actress who came to mind because I just saw the new Blade Runner, but Anna de Armas. Um, Anna de Armas, I think you say. Um, and, uh, God damn, okay. I, I was about to say Christopher Hitchens because, I, you know, okay, actually Bertrand Russell's pretty good on political stuff, so that actually is covered. So maybe another philosophy guy um maybe like galen strawson i guess so like uh yeah i'll go with uh strawson russell and anna de armas see i i whenever i say this i i always um say that i want people to disagree and i want to just be in on a massive argument so i get william lane craig uh tavaya singer and then i don't know richard carrie or something like that where you get except that would be two atheists you know but do you know what i mean i would have like a right ding dong for a month and you come out just like it turns out that god doesn't exist or like <laughs> does or no we've been at it for a month and honestly no one agrees you know and i really set myself up for failure by putting russell in there because i mean the idea that like i mean russell was just famous for um for being cool i'll just put it that way so I think that um, Russell and Anna de Armas are going to be spending all their time together and me and Strasser are going to be chatting. <laughs> <laughs> Francis Tumblety, Jack the Ripper suspect and quack doctor. The uh, Nacine preacher, Gnostic genius and Simone Weil, philosopher. See, that seems um, that seems unwise to me because of the whole jack the ripper thing <laughs> just, i really want to know whether you are jack the ripper yes it was me and you are now going to be killed all three of you are going yeah to have fun sleeping at night yeah. there's only one of you is coming out of that bunker i'll take jeffrey dahmer jack <laughs> the ripper and, and hitler oh, oh god oh no um anyway uh thank you so much for your time here thank you uh for all you people in the chat for keeping us company and for the occasional question uh thanks for all your support it's really really appreciated thanks for those who super chatted today canadian catholic and uh mitch mitch mazarol uh thank you for um i don't know having a uh, interesting surname uh and for your support um i hope to do this again with emerson at some point i don't know if he will go through with any of my like mad cat thought experiments and feel really uncomfortable about answering saying i'm not sure i'm happy with advocating state atheism and <laughs> death all no, i didn't say that but whatever uh so i hope to do this again emerson it's been really great uh and and um i'll be posting more articles that will be dipping into some of your own blog posts uh in future because um what you, some of your content is absolutely all of your content is absolutely fantastic uh do you have any final words anything you'd like to say to uh find tell us where to find you Oh yeah, uh, you can find me at Walden Pod on Twitter, and uh, I've got a link tree there. Um, I've got a link tree on my YouTube as well. You can find everything there. But yeah, Emerson Green on YouTube, um, 
and uh, you know, counter apologetics, Walden Pod on any podcast app that you like. But you know, I, I was going to ask you this before we went live, but because I was running so late, I just got here and then we immediately went up. But I was going to ask you if you wanted to be a guest on my channel to talk about your new book about the thirty arguments. Whoop, whoop, whoop. <laughs> yes, I definitely would actually, and uh, I love this book. Uh, it's really, really good, fun book, and I think. You know, I, I, I often talk about, um, uh, w- you know, you end up spending so much time arguing about, you know, is the resurrection of Jesus? Did it happen? You get into all the, the long weeds of like the nativity and whether like historical uh, and exegetical analysis and theological analysis of this. It's like, yeah, if you can't get over these 30 arguments here, right, all of that is just pie in the sky. That that all supervenes on this stuff. And if this stuff is is impassable, then then I'm sorry you know, you've got some issues. And actually, some of this is so fundamental that, that, that I, in the same way that I think the free will argument is is impossible. And I think, you know, in, unless if I did debate, sorry, I'm going off on one here now that you've asked me that question. But like, if I was to debate William Lane Craig, I often say I'd debate free will with him first. Like, yeah, your four arguments, great, William Lane Craig. All of that's irrelevant if you can't establish libertarian free will, which your judgmental God requires. So I don't know. Would you agree broadly on those kind of like taking these people really need to consider more philosophical arguments like this first before getting on to the deeper ones or the, the not the deeper, the veneer ones? Well, it sounds like you've accepted my invitation, first of all. Um, <laughs> but uh, as for the free will thing, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I want to read. I, I got the uh, just when I saw that you posted it, I started reading the little sample thing on Kindle and I'm, I'm going to buy it and uh, read it before we talk because I want a better idea of what that argument actually is of, of like the crucial importance of libertarian free will to Christian theology and uh, also open theism. Like I want to know how that factors into, um, uh, yeah, just based what I read on the, in, in the introduction and like the beginnings of the first chapter and everything, um, yeah, I, I have questions in the back of my mind about um, the connection between free will and, and Christian belief and um, open theism. Yeah, I mean, open theism is, is an interesting idea because I think it's just a ad hoc uh, rationalization or ad hoc kind of get out of jail free card for divine foreknowledge which is which is effective so i and my one of my previous videos is entirely on this the divine foreknowledge is the biggest problem for christian for for the classical theism like you it, know i i'm sorry to sorry to interrupt but something just clicked with me it's, i feel so stupid for even so i when i'm considering christianity i'm constantly thinking of like the strongest version of christianity in my head which is like what i personally consider to be most plausible and i often forget that christians are typically not working with the kind of steel-manned christianity that i have in my head you know they believe in you know a lot of christians believe in hell and um a certain like soteriological image you know and a certain um conception of of uh well, yeah, like I mean, this free will stuff does connect to to several crucial aspects of Christian theology. It just it doesn't really in my uh, you know mind palace version of Christianity, where I'm like trying to construct like the most steel manned version. But yeah, the the actual like Christianity out in the wild, like um, yeah, I can totally see how undermining libertarian free will is like extremely devastating. Um, but it, it is worth noting though that open theism, like you mentioned, uh, whether it's 
you know, whatever the causal history of how open theism came about is, I don't, I don't really know about that, but it, it is overwhelmingly subscribed to by academics and it is overwhelmingly not subscribed to among lay people. But because, because it is, so if you start with these kind of foundation bricks of philosophy and character characteristics, like, well, God has to be omnibenevolence, then divine foreknowledge is a absolute nightmare it's a real problem so if i i've said this before if i was a christian i would drop divine foreknowledge the problem is if you adopt open theism one it doesn't play well with with evidence in the bible like it's not really biblically evidenced and two it devalues god's um like if you're taking on the ontological argument where god is the greatest thing in in conception nothing greater than that and you say well if god doesn't know the future um freely will the future like results of freely will decision then god's for then god's knowledge is really limited if, if like i keep saying this but if facebook can can adequately can can accurately predict your behavior based on 300 likes better than your own partner right then we can predict free supposed freely will decisions pretty well and if god can't do that then God's less effective than Facebook algorithms. So well, in, okay. I, I think that I think that the idea is like he does have some kind of counterfactual knowledge where he knows like what would happen if you did X, Y, and Z. But because you have libertarian free will, he doesn't know. Like he can guess, I oh, will probably pick X and not Y or Z. But if he picks X, maybe this will happen. And if he picks Y, this will happen. If he picks Z, this will happen. But because he has libertarian free will, I don't actually know for sure which option he'll select it's like the future is truly open and i think in open theism god also has libertarian free will so his his knowledge is kind of dynamic where it's like i think he could have counterfactual knowledge where he could predict everything that would happen given certain assumptions about what will happen but he doesn't actually know what will happen because of libertarian free will but is knowledge a great making property I think he has as much knowledge as you could have since people have libertarian free will. And it just gets really great then. And you're like, well, is God really just rolling the dice? Is he, He's like, he's basically like, well, I'm going to create a universe. I have no idea where it's going to go. So here you go, roll the dice. And how can you call him omnibalevolent then? Well, I, just, I just think as that... Like, as he could be, but then if he could step in, like, so that, oh, it's, it's God damn it, there are so many interesting <laughs> ideas well, come out. I, I think that people can reasonably say that, you know, God is constrained by, like, logical possibility. And if libertarian free will is a feature of God's nature and it's a feature of our nature, then you could still say that he has as much knowledge as is, like, logically possible to have. But then you get further problems here. So if you accept open theism, then uh, things like skeptical theism fall apart. But you're saying there's a reason. If, if skeptical theism falls apart, no matter what, so <laughs> there's no. But but yeah. but the idea. But actually, theodicies fall apart. Like like if, if you're saying, well, God doesn't know 100 percent what's going to happen. You're like, well, how can you say? Tell me at, at the same breath, you're telling me that there's a reason that this happened. Well, if 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 you don't know whether that's going to, you know, allow for like, the only theodicy that, that, that really works is a free will theodicy. Like all the other theodicies is like, well, we don't know that's going to be the consequence because actually you, God doesn't know where this universe is going. And so, and so, you know, open theism just produces a whole, a lot more problems than I think it solves. Like, but, but if I was a theist, I would 
really struggle with divine fallen like the part of the reason i'm not theist is that all of these arguments render god incoherent so if you go down the open theism route you end up with an incoherent god and if you go with the divine full knowledge route that god is equally incoherent but for lots of other reasons therefore i'm an atheist <laughs> yeah no i mean i think that the uh, that, that works for many conceptions of god whenever you're talking about arguments against god um you're necessarily talking about a certain conception of god you know so i think that a lot of these arguments do you know pretty much decisively rule out like certain conceptions of god certain very popular conceptions of god but i think if i'm trying to steel man christianity and say that like okay maybe you know the laity just has like kind of um like a crude picture of of reality and and kind of you know, move on from that and, and try to argue against the strongest form of Christianity, even though it's like believed by not that many people. No, I'd say that's, I'd say you're still manning theism. I'd say that I would argue vehemently that that wouldn't be Christianity because I don't think, oh, it depends how much you take seriously the evidence of the Gospels and, and the Hebrew Bible. Because yeah, I think, they'd still believe in the resurrection and all that. But then it's like, yeah, you can believe that bit, but the bits where, you know, God knows everything, you like, don't believe that and so i think it's problematic but this is the stuff that we could talk about when i come around to yours mate. <laughs> well it's interesting because i feel like you know there are open theists who could make some of the same arguments that you're making or like yeah. kind of join forces with you against yeah. the non-open theists you know that's why um, they're open theists yeah yeah and it's just at the end of it they don't say therefore atheism they say therefore open theism they say therefore some weird cobbled together version of christianity that they can ad hoc rationalize based on the fact that an omniscient divine foreknowledge god doesn't make sense therefore this god i'm just i'm not so uh i don't know trigger happy with the uh oh it's all ad hoc oh it's all like i mean well it, it is. i mean it is ad hoc by nation okay ad hoc mate but it, it is reactive like open theism is a, is a recent development precisely because of the problem that divine foreknowledge poses for an omnibenevolent God. I mean, but I mean, in the, by the same token, all my beliefs are ad hoc because I started in a certain crude place and then I would react to criticisms yeah. and then I would change my beliefs as I go along. That's what you're supposed to do. So I, it's like, yeah, I don't, you, are, you are no longer a Christian. But, but even as say, an atheist, like my worldview, I'm saying is largely ad hoc in the sense that I, you know, developed it in response to criticism and debate and so on. And it's like, so Christians aren't allowed to do that. Like, no, I yeah. think that like open theism, I mean, like, yeah, it, it might've come about as a result of puzzling over like, Oh, with divine foreknowledge and this is all problematic. But like, I think that it should be open to anyone to update your beliefs based on criticism of others and not Absolutely. necessarily throw out the whole thing. Um, you know, cause open theists are just trying to, see if their their basic worldview can be salvaged like despite um some details not working out but i don't think that that's like irrational you know no 100 percent, and, and i will concede that but however i think the tension exists in in whether an open theist can call themselves a christian given the evidence of the bible so it becomes i mean this is so critics of open theism from within christianity will say that it doesn't cohere with with what the bible says so See, I, would, uh, I would think it's the other way around though i mean i what like what stories are incompatible with open theism 
any anyone that pertains to God's God's knowledge of of you know being a closed book, you know, uh, the, all the all the omniscient arguments, as well as uh, no, no, I won't because that's not non biblical. So uh, the idea of prophecy. So if you're saying that prophecy is going to come come to and this will happen, then you then if that's going to happen, then open theism doesn't work. There, there are lots, and we can we can talk about that on on. Is, on your is this is this whole conversation going to turn into me defending open theism? <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be like you're the Christian. You're you're like yeah. I would but, rather just get an open theist because I'm not going to do it as well as they're going to, and I, I obviously at the end of the day don't really care as much as yeah, they do yeah, but but I, I mean what i was thinking of are bible stories where it's like god genuinely doesn't seem like he seems surprised by things like yeah you know he seems like that seems a lot more compatible with open theism yeah and w w so the, the idea that god doesn't know where adam and eve are in the garden of eden but then these right. are the anthropomorphic rendering of renderings of god uh, as as we see in the hebrew bible before he gets abstracted to this ontological version that we see go through the hebrew bible and through through the the gospels and then eventually even more so to nowadays where god is so abstract that he is this much more classical understanding classical uh, understanding of classical theism which certainly you're right certainly wasn't the hebrew bible i think I think the whole thing's an incoherent mess because I think you can take elements of open theism that you can argue from like some of the some of the 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 excerpts of like Adam and Eve not God doesn't know where they are therefore God doesn't know future freely will events or whatever uh, and then but you can also argue the opposite and and that's the nature of the bible is you can go to two completely divergent you know, views I, I should say though that like even though I think open theism is a legitimate option and you seem to to be arguing that it's not like e even oh, if you're successful in 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 arguing against non-open theism that's like a massive deal because most people are not open theists like most yeah, christians yeah. are not open theists so if you can make arguments against that conception of god and theism then that's a very big deal you know i mean like that's you know kind of important 100%. So most theists will be classical theists, as in lay people. If you say, is God omni, 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 they'll say, yeah, of course. And then, or like, this is why he's not. Okay, where do you go from here? Well, can you do open theism? Well, does this cause more problems? You know, that's the next day. So what we can probably do, I don't know if you're cool with this, Anderson, is we can do the book and talk about where where that leaves you and then say, okay, how, how tenable is open theism as a response to that? And can you be a Christian and an open theist? Yeah, I mean, this process never ends. It's no. the thing. Like, it's, but the thing is, you will start dealing with fewer and fewer people and smaller and smaller groups of Christians. Like, the kind of Christianity that I've kind of invented in my head of like, this is like the strongest constructible version of Christianity. I don't know if anyone believes it. I don't know if there's a single yeah. person who actually yeah, adheres to my version of Christianity. Yeah, that could, ex that could, ha exist. yeah, that could but exist. Then, but then, is also, it, although it might be logically tenable in some se sense, it's it's probabilistically not. <laughs> so, I mean, it's a lot more. I would have to be agnostic towards the kind of Christianity, but like I said, it's so far removed from what most people mean by Christian. You know, like if I told my parents, "Oh, I'm a Christian now," and then I told them what I meant by that, they'd be like, "No, you're still an atheist." <laughs> <laughs> I believe in some idealistic mind, single absolute <laughs> mind, and uh, uh, yeah, no. 
you lost us um mate uh, as uh, mitch has just said and thank you so much mitch again uh, that's been up for several minutes now and i haven't even recognized it a reward for your pleasant inability to bring a stream to a close really have enjoyed this <laughs> thanks um 17 minutes ago i tried to to, to to end this show and it's still going uh, so many times i wanted to chime in i am listening via headphones uh, will i uh, while i do spring cleaning great stream though very thought-provoking uh, and uh, and Mitch adds in, of course, you know, those Dan Iron Chariots. So e even if he doesn't know it, all future 3D World decisions, he's, he can't defeat Iron Chariots. So <laughs> right. that's a real problem. Uh, and <laughs> Sabra uh, um, Berswicht, uh, for your for, for you a seamless wrap up of the stream thank you i am nothing <laughs> if not professional uh, and do do love a talk uh so sorry emerson i indulge it's your fault emerson you brought it up um i yeah i i'm up for that mate let's do it um in the meantime thank you so much for your support guys thank you Sabra, for that and mitch for all of your support and everyone else uh take care all the best please subscribe to everything emerson does he's a great guy uh, as you have seen um toodle pips for now and uh, i will see you on the other side and uh, check me out on emerson's podcast at some point maybe if he's generous enough to fulfill that <laughs> <sighs> bye